Welcome to Navigating the Classics. I'm John Snyder, and with me today uh, is Steve Crampton and Chris Green. And some of you, if you've watched some of our uh, Whole Council podcast, you'll be familiar with Steve. He pitches in and helps a lot. And Steve, we're grateful for that. You're very busy. And Chris might be new to you. So I'm going to ask Steve and Chris to introduce themselves. And then with these uh, special podcasts, um, we're going to look at a book that may not normally be looked at, even by those that would normally read Puritan books, you know. So if you have read some of Owen or, you know, John Flavel, Richard Sibbs, Thomas Watson, and you really appreciate them, uh, that's good. But there, there are older books pre-Reformation, and there are some Puritan books that are kind of a hard go. So in Navigating the Classics, we pick some of those and we try to give an overview what were the arguments in the book? Why are they beneficial? How are they beneficial? What are some of the strengths and weaknesses of the book? And today we're going to be looking at a book uh, by one of my favorite authors, but this is not my favorite book of my favorite author, all right? This is my, probably my, it's on the, the least side, all right? It's, on the, it's down the list, but it's an important book. Lex Rex, or The Law and the Prince by the Puritan Samuel Rutherford. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to that, uh, Rutherford, and to this book in a minute. So Steve, why don't you give us uh, just a, a little introduction for those that uh, have not uh, met you before? Sure. Uh, I mean, primarily, let me just say, I practice public interest law for a Christian firm, basically defending Christians uh, and their civil rights in the context of government overreach. So unlike you, perhaps Lex Rex kind of strikes to uh, much of the core of what I do uh, professionally. Chris, uh, we haven't met you before, so tell us about yourself, your you know, um, educational background, what you do now, and how'd you get to Christ Church? Sure. So I'm uh, a law professor at Ole Miss, University of Mississippi School of Law. Been there since 2006. Uh, uh, have a law degree from uh, Yale and then a uh, philosophy PhD from Notre Dame. Uh, so I came here after finishing the, the PhD, uh, came to, to Mississippi, uh, found Christ Church basically looking around for uh, like-minded churches, places that had uh, a Reformed Baptist approach to the scriptures. Uh, we were had loved the kind of preaching we had heard at a, at a church uh, uh, in Indiana when we were going to grad school, and uh, we really we just fell in love with your preaching, John, uh, is uh, the reason we kept coming. Uh, but uh, but we've been uh, uh, you know coming here for 15 years, been on the on the board of MG for uh, well, what, some number of years. Uh, uh, goes by in a blink, but uh, uh, but uh, I teach uh, teach the law. I'm currently engaged in writing a book. Uh, about the history of certain concepts in the 14th Amendment from 1215 to present day. So I've been digging digging through this stuff from uh, Magna Carta in 1215 up through, uh, I'm currently digging through the War of the Roses in the 15th century, but uh, but I, the, the background to uh, to the Rutherford stuff is, is very much in the, in the top of my mind, and I'm noticing all these precursors as I'm doing that work. Uh, so it's it's really uh, historically, you know, titanically important uh, uh, work, and it's you know if you're going to understand law, uh, you got to understand where America came from, and America uh, was initially uh, a Puritan settlement, mm -hmm. 
And Rutherford's thoughts were really central to how uh, they thought of themselves. So as I teach American law, uh, uh, Rutherford, he's, you know, you're not going to tell, you know, secular law students to read it, but it's going to be in the background. So it's, it's been, you know, part of, uh, part of what I do as a law professor, uh, 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 the, 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 the ideas in it uh, have been there uh, all along. So, Chris, when did you first come into contact with the book Lexrex? I think I first heard about it. Um, I was uh, doing a year-long mission project after I graduated undergrad, and I was planning to go to law school. And I, we, I was with a, with a group, and uh, we had all kinds of theology that we were, we were reading. And somebody had a reference, saw a reference to Rutherford, and uh, a buddy of mine uh, said, oh, Rutherford, now, you know, that's your guy, the Lex Rex guy. Because uh, he thought, oh, you're, you're going to law school. Surely you've read Lex Rex. <laughs> and that was the first time I'd heard about, about Lex Rex. Uh, but a few years later, I uh, uh, probably, I think when I was in, in uh, law school, I was uh, buying books at a, at, a, at a terrifying pace. And at some point, I, I saw a, a Lex Rex in a, in a used bookstore and picked it up. Uh, and... Uh, and read through it uh, at, at some point, uh, and uh, uh, later, you know, looked at it in, in much more detail. Met, you know, met some more people who were in a, a more fiercely Scottish tradition. Uh, people who uh, who uh, toss around phrases like "lesser magistrate" all the time, and uh, uh, realized I need to, I really need to look at this carefully if I'm going to understand uh, uh, the, my my friends. Uh, uh, thought uh, a little bit better, uh, but it really is is uh, is a is a titanically important work historically. Uh, so it's uh, so I've been uh, yeah it's it you know ever since I've started thinking seriously about theology and about the law uh, I've known about. If you were to give us a one kind of one sentence summary of the content of Lex Rex, what would it be? So Lex is the law. Rex is the king. The king is subject to the law. And in certain circumstances, in principle, sometimes it's okay for other people besides the king to resist the king's unlawful actions. That's what I would say. Is May the, I the throw piece. in there too, John? The uh, subtitle that we have in the common uh, edition, The Law and the Prince, is really, I think, a bit unfair. As Chris uh, translated it just a minute, we talk in the U.S. constantly about the rule of law, right? Meaning that all men, even our presidents and leaders and so forth, are under law. And it seems to me fundamentally that's sort of the principle that Rutherford was trying to capture here in that title. Oh yeah, and the the, right. the the reason that is such a common uh, American phrase is really uh, it's not just Rutherford, but it's a kind of the Rutherfordian tradition has become just part of part of the air we breathe. Yeah. Uh, but it uh, yeah it has so it you know it has a, a subtitle the Law and the Prince. It's got a bunch of other subtitles uh, too. Sure, you know, sure. so uh, the Lex Rex or the Law and the Prince, a dispute for the just prerogative of king and people, containing the reasons and causes of the most necessary defensive wars of the kingdom of Scotland and of their expedition for the aid and help of their dear brethren of England 
in which their innocency is asserted and a full answer is given to the seditious pamphlet entitled, and then it goes and gives a whole bunch of details about this fellow. The seditious pamphlet, to. yeah. Uh, so uh, it uh, it is a very, very specific context. But the principles he talks about, especially the biblical explanations, the going through the biblical material, really have enduring significance. But there's no question. There's a lot of context you can read just in the title. By the way, we don't do titles like that today. Why is that? You know, you don't. I was thinking that's you know family worship for Elizabethan man. That, you know, that's really pretty exciting. Well, I want to I want to give an introduction to who Rutherford was because I think that it's a good safeguard <clears throat> when we when we look at Lex Rex. It, there there are certain personality types. There are certain you know intellectual types. Some people love politics and love the principles and love history. And so Lex Rex is just like, you know, it's like a drug. You're like, this is right. This is good thinking. Uh, and then others are, you know, disinterested in that. And I, I'm generally in that category where I think, well, I appreciate that Rutherford wrote things that were helpful here, but I'm more interested in other areas. But I think that if we understand a little bit of Rutherford, though it's not always the case that the character and experiences of an author, you know, affect how we approach a book. You know, I, I've never read uh, a mathematical book. You know, I, I, my Algebra 2 book in high school, I, I didn't know who wrote it. I still don't know who. I don't care who wrote it. You know, it, it's just algebra. But with a book like this, I think it is really beneficial for the believer to understand the Christocentric um, heart of this thinker and the, the, the grip that Christ's majesty has upon this man and the cost that he pays to honor the Lord personally uh, in his home, uh, it, it, through tragedy uh, in, in his church and even in the larger national you know, uh, down at Westminster with, with the assembly. When you see that love to Christ constrains Rutherford in each of these areas and through all these seasons of life, then when you read Lex Rex, it prevents us from becoming men who are enamored with certain legal principles, but without the king at the heart. Uh, and I think that will hold us on balance as believers. I'm, I'm speaking to a believer, obviously. You know, the unbeliever may admire uh, Lex Rex's principles, but they, they don't understand that at the heart there is a, there is a person, there is a king. Uh, so let me give you just a quick introduction. I think it was probably 30 years ago that I started noticing Rutherford's name. Uh, I, I probably noticed it first with men like uh, Spurgeon. And Spurgeon, sometimes I think he was the, you know, he was the blurb writer for books before he was the grandfather of it, you know, like this book is the greatest. And, He's the Jedi and, Packer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, how, how many books did you recommend? So I remember reading him and, uh, and there's a quote inside. Uh, this is a, a copy of Banner of Truth's Letters of Rutherford. And um, here's a quote from Spurgeon. What a wealth of spiritual ravishment we have here. Rutherford is beyond all praise of men, like a strong-winged eagle. He soars into the highest heaven, and with unblenched, unblinking eye, he looks into the mystery of love divine. There is to us something mysterious, all-creating and superhuman 
about his letters. So when I read that, I'm like, well, I've got to go buy these letters. And, um, and I also noticed that other people were recommending Rutherford, per- particularly in their journals, they were, they were quoting him. So these were people from other theological traditions, Hudson Taylor, Amy Carmichael. And when you find a person whose writings are quoted across denominational lines and through the centuries, and it's not just that someone's using him as an illustration, but in their personal journals, what he says about Christ sustains them. Then I think, well, okay, I want to know why that man has an enduring quality in his voice. And so I picked up these letters and I started to read them and I was unimpressed. I thought, well, these are letters and they're letters, you know, 400 years ago. And he's writing to the the, you know, the, the Marquis of such and such yes. and the lady so-and-so. And I think, you know, I mean, they're not terrible, but they're not second to scripture, you know, like, like some of the people said. Then I read a biography. Now, this is an old copy, but this is my favorite biography for Rutherford. Uh, it was actually given to me uh, by Anthony Methinium. And uh, it, uh, it, it's by, it's the life of Samuel Rutherford by a man named Andrew Thompson. I think the Easiest way to get that now is print on demand. I think it's out of print. That I found to be the most helpful. It's a simple biography, but at the last quarter of the book, he devotes to giving uh, significant quotes from Rutherford. So not one-liners, which there are many. Rutherford's so quotable. There are many Rutherford quote books. Uh, The Loveliness of Christ by Banner of Truth in that nice little like leather soft Mm. red edition. I give that to everybody. I mean, it's just so helpful. But I like this because he gives paragraphs of quotes and it kind of gives you more context. When I read the life of Rutherford and saw what he went through, and then when I read what he said about Christ after that, then I went back to the letters. And I started with the letters where he's traveling from the south of Scotland, a place called Anworth, where he was pastoring, up to Aberdeen. And as he travels, he spends the night with Christian friends along the way. And he's, he's basically going to be put under house arrest there for preaching and writing in a way that it offended the monarchy and the powers that be. So as he's making his way to jail and leaving his people behind and uh, a hireling is going to be placed behind him in his pulpit, which really bothers him, he, he begins to write letters. Uh, and these, well, he's written before, but these are the letters where I started because it's when he realizes he's going to jail and then in the about two years that he's in jail in Aberdeen uh, under house arrest. These, it's a season in Rutherford's life where God will not let him preach. He's not allowed to preach, but he can write letters. So providentially, he is allowed to express things about Christ that he's learning in an extraordinary season of suffering, but also an extraordinary season of grace. Rutherford writes about this time and says, the nearness of God at times was so great, he had to ask God to restrain himself. God, I can't take any more. Then he writes and says, I'm in danger of having two Christs. There's Christ, and then I'm tempted to make a Jesus of the experiences I'm having here. They're so sweet, and I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to idolize the gifts of God's nearness. Um, You know, and so he, he also describes it as being, he said, I'm in the suburbs of heaven. He said, I'm like a child, you know, looking over a wall into the, into the great, you know, the new Jerusalem, eternity. And it's like I can peek and almost see it. Uh, he also said that if someone would have told me 
how much of Christ a man can experience in this life. As a good Presbyterian, he said, I would have said they were crazy. But he said, I have tasted this. And he said, everything I experienced of Christ before prison, it was like a child learning their ABCs. So when you read his letters, if you're having a, a, a tough go of them, pick up where you notice in the letters, he leaves Anworth and he's on his way to jail and read the letters in prison. And, um, and you'll, I think you'll find them particularly helpful. Now, let me mention just a little bit about his ministry. In 1627, he becomes pastor of this little country church in, in the south, in the lowlands of Scotland, a place called Anworth. It's picturesque and beautiful. The ruins of the building are still there. You know, I've walked everywhere I can there so that I know that I, I stood where Rutherford stood at some point. Uh, now it's just, you know, there's no roof left. It's just the stone walls and everything else is rotted away. And now there's, uh, it's become kind of a, a, a cemetery where there's graves all through the church and all around it. Um, Rutherford becomes pastor there and he's a very diligent pastor. He mentions that he wakes generally at 3 a.m. And in the first couple of hours of the day, he's reading and worshiping and praying. And then the remainder of the morning, he's studying and writing. And then in the afternoon, he begins his long journeys, uh, you know, to the, to the different members' houses all around. They, it's, a, it's a rural area, so long walks. And one of my favorite quotes by Rutherford is, he says, These hills witness to the fact that I labored in prayer as I walked. I labored to bring on a fair meeting betwixt Christ and my people. So it's not just the brain of Rutherford. It's that, it's that sweet dependence on Christ, you know, as well as being ruled by Christ, heart and mind. After about nine years of pastoring, he so offends uh, the political powers that he is placed, as I mentioned, under house arrest. And then he writes those letters. And I think the best edition of the letters is the one that Banner has put out. And I, this is really the one that's most popular now. And that is um, put together by Andrew Bonar, who also did uh, the, um, the memoir of McShane. Because Bonar writes about a 40-page sketch of his life. And it's, it's not academic, but it sure is heartwarming. And then he organizes the letters, 365 letters. You can read one a day. Well, let's think a little bit about his ministry. He was not considered a great orator. His voice was not a beautiful voice. He was not, you know, a, an impressive man to walk in and he's in the pul pr pulpit preaching. And maybe like a Spurgeon, you would immediately be thinking, wow, this man is really gifted for this. But his sermons were penetrating, especially when he would turn to the topic of Christ himself. A famous uh, English, uh, a famous quote, is from an English merchant, a businessman who's heard of Rutherford. He's doing business in Scotland. And so he stops by to hear Rutherford preach and he hears Rutherford and two other Scottish Puritans. And this is how he describes them. The first pastor, he said, showed me all my heart. That's pretty classic Puritan, you know, searching the soul. The second showed me the majesty of God. He said, but Rutherford, the third, showed me the loveliness of Christ. Rutherford did pass through terrible times of suffering in the first couple years of his ministry in Anworth. He was often grieved at the cold-heartedness of the people. And, uh, and as he's trying to minister to them, he also goes through a, a, a lot of suffering personally. Uh, he, he talks about his, uh, 
his young wife and he, they have two children. They both die. And uh, so they, they lose them to disease. And then his wife uh, enters into a long season of a painful, slow death. His mother moves in with him. She has a painful, slow death. He talks about the fact that, you know, hearing his wife or his mother groaning in pain through the night, you know, they, the doctors couldn't do anything more for them. And he said, life became bitter. They die. After they die, he said he has one joy in life. Children are dead. My mother's dead. My wife is dead. My only joy is I do get to preach Christ. And then he said, Christ came. I had a garden with one rose growing in it. And Christ came and sent a winter blast that withered my rose. In other places, he said, Christ came and cut my one rose and took it. And what he means is he was removed from being able to preach and then moved to Aberdeen. After uh, about uh, two years in jail where he writes these letters and providentially that's what he's known best for, he returns to Anworth to pastor. He's so happy to do that. And then the Scottish church authorities say, actually, we want you somewhere else. And they put him at St. Andrew's University, St. Mary's College there, and he becomes the chair of theology. He won't go there, he says, unless they promise that he can still pastor. So he co-pastors with another Puritan named Robert Blair. He's there for about five years. And then the Westminster Assembly is, a, is called together. And the Scots are allowed to send um, advisors, not delegates. They don't get to vote, but they get to come and advise. So he goes down and for about four years, he's in London. And he's there, he's writing and things. He's remarried. He and his wife have, I think, seven children. Eventually, that young wife dies. All six, six of the seven children die. Rutherford goes back after four years down there, and he, and he returns to pastoring in St. Andrews. He becomes the, uh, uh, the head of the, the university there, what, becomes, what was combined and becomes St. Andrews. And then he gets himself in trouble again as political climate changes. He's, the Puritans are out of favor again. The Scots are out of favor. And he gets in trouble with his writings, and he is told that he is being summoned to London to stand, you know, as a criminal for what he's written. And he makes that famous statement, you know, go tell your king, I won't be appearing in his court. I'm dying. I will soon appear at a higher court where few of his kind ever reach. You know, he's not going to heaven. I'm going to see Christ and I'll be with him. Let me give you two quotes by Rutherford before we jump into his book. One is what he said about his church when he saw that there seemed to be a reluctance to really grab hold of in the early days of the beauty of Christ. He said this, Christ Jesus, so boundless, so incomparable in his excellence and his sweetness, and so few take him. Oh, you poor, dry, dead souls, why will you not come and bring your empty vessels and your empty souls to this huge, fair, deep, and sweet well of life? Uh, when he was dying, uh, after the after you know the uh, his political opponents are sending him uh, a police officer to say basically you need to make the trip to London, uh, then he's visited by his pastoral friends and his fellow pastors come in you know and they want to say goodbye to their friend and he he says to them, you know, 
The king is coming. Do all for the king. Preach for Christ. Pray for Christ. Labor for Christ. And then he says this. Now would to God that all cold-blooded, faint-hearted soldiers of Christ would look again to Jesus and his love. And when they look, I would have them look again and again and fill themselves with the beauty of beholding Christ. And I, I think that really sums him up. And I think that that's why Lex Rex is so extraordinary, because it's great political theory, but it's by a man whose allegiance rises higher than any earthly politics. Well, Chris, why don't you just jump in there and take us through the, the background and the main points of Lex Rex? Sure. So, okay. Um, how you always have the question with background, how far do you want to go back down? So, uh, like, okay, well, first there was the garden. And then <laughs> so, uh, one thing that's striking, uh, is that I've noticed as I've been doing reading you know, for my book, uh, even the, I mean, it's sort of a, almost a, uh, like a pun or a, a, you know, a little mini poem, uh, the words Lex and Rex rhyme. Uh, there's this fellow, Henry uh, of Bracton, in, uh, so this is kind of the generation after Magna Carta. This is uh, somebody writing in the 13th century under uh, Henry III. Henry III has this rebellion that leads to this uh, uh, kind of first constitution for England that doesn't last too long called the Provisions of Oxford. But around that time, uh, there are these people uh, rebelling against the king, uh, and their argument is the king's acting unlawfully. And Bracton, Bracton's the, no question, the preeminent uh, legal, we have a better treated, we have a better understanding of 13th century law than we do of like succeeding centuries of the 14th, 15th century because Bracton exists. And he has this uh, statement that the power of the king is the power of the law. He's writing in Latin, so, uh, and he makes a bunch of, uh, I'm told <laughs> by people who, who know the Latin better, uh, uh, a bunch of uh, sort of rhymy, uh, uh, poetic uh, uh, statements about the, the the rhyming of Lex and Rex. So this is 400 years before Rutherford, but people who know the tradition of uh, once in a while, the English will rise up against their king, they're going to know this pun. So I think uh, there's no question that people are going to recognize this, this Bracton influence. Bracton himself is is kind of cagey about whether he supports the folks that that lead to the the provisions of Oxford or not, uh, but uh, but it's in the in the intellectual uh, environment. Um, Calvin comes on the scene, of course. The Reformation comes on the scene in the 16th century, and at the very end of Calvin's Institutes, uh, Calvin has this description about law and the uh, the Christian. Uh, and he has this phrase, uh, obviously not English, but uh, I think he writes in both French and Latin, but the lesser magistrate. And he says, sometimes a political community will organize itself in a way that has some powers given to one person or one group of people and other powers given to another. So he looks back. This is you know, Reformation, obviously. Uh, uh, around that same time, you have the, the Renaissance, much more... Uh, uh, interest in uh, classical influences. They're looking to places like Greece and Rome. Uh, and he says, well, you know, look at Sparta, look at Rome, look at Athens. Uh, Sparta, they have a king of Sparta, uh, uh, but they also have uh, this office, the ephor. And I, I have no idea what uh, uh, 
uh, what the e4 does, but it has some powers that the king doesn't have. Rome, uh, when it's a republic, even even after it's an empire, they sort of have retained some of these outward forms. But they've got the consul uh, and the tribune. Uh, the consul has certain powers, uh, and the tribunes have, have have other powers. Athens, they have a senate uh, doing certain kinds of things, and the demarch doing other kinds of things. Calvin. In, in the Institutes, looks back to those, and he says, uh, under certain circumstances, somebody who is not the top most prominent official in a government uh, can nonetheless have power to resist uh, the assertions of authority uh, by the person who is the most prominent. Just because you're the most prominent doesn't mean you can tell everybody what to do in every circumstance. Okay. Calvin doesn't say a whole lot in, in that Brief, brief chapter. The very, it's the very last chapter of, of Calvin's Institutes. If you got a copy, you can, you can go, uh, you find it uh, uh, very easily. And uh, Chris, let me just interject right there too. Uh, somewhat like Rutherford, it seems to me, Calvin has become so caricatured in history, right? Both for his uh, reformed theology, but also in this context of the lesser magistrates. And when you read the Institutes in context. He goes to great pains, somewhat like John, your intro about Rutherford, to set forth very carefully the exposition of Romans 13 and how we owe obedience even to wicked rulers and so forth. And this is kind of the last resort, right, before you get to the lesser magistrates. So uh, I just want to throw that out there that uh, there's so much misunderstanding in the history of resistance to lawful authority. And Calvin was such a warm-hearted, pastoral-minded fellow. And again, you look at his own historical experience in Geneva, he was the last guy that would actually kind of take up arms and so forth. So he should also, I think, be considered in that context of God first, you know, resistance as a last resort. Yeah. And he... And it's very clear if you if you just look at Calvin, it's very clear it, it is going to depend. So he's not saying as just a general matter, any lesser magistrate just because you're some kind of magistrate, therefore you have the authority to resist any unlawful exercise of power. You know, a county sheriff uh, can't just go uh, under just any uh, circumstances where he thinks the the federal government's doing something unlawful and. I mean, they do lots of stuff that's unlawful, but there are certain uh, officials who have authority and certain uh, uh, other officials who don't have authority uh, under certain circumstances to resist it. So the, the contingency, the extreme contingency of the political arrangement, it's very obvious in, in Calvin himself. He calls them, in the translation at least, that uh, I've got constitutional defenders of freedom. So again, like you say, a limited class here. Yeah. So okay. So Calvin is saying this. He's saying saying a few things uh, like that. Uh, you have a fellow James Buchanan. Um, I mean, one of uh, probably uh, I don't know if there's millions of James Buchanans in Scotland, but there are there are quite a few. And actually, uh, the the addition of of Lex Rex that uh, so we're we're I think all probably looking at a 1982 reprinting of it. But uh, that's reprinting of a. Uh, uh, some sort of 19th century uh, uh, version that actually includes a dialogue by Buchanan uh, as an appendix. Okay, so James the Sixth of Scotland, when he was, which he was at the time. Okay, so 
a lot of a lot of details about why on earth he's going to come to to England. But uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, is removed from being queen when James is very very young. His father dies under uh, somewhat mysterious circumstances, uh, perhaps uh, killed by people in league with his mother. Anyway. Because of that, because his father dies when he's very, very young, he has a very long regency period, long, very long period where uh, he's not in charge. He's just a, a, a baby and then a, and a, and a boy. Uh, his tutors have a huge amount of influence on him. His, one of his tutors is this James Buchanan fellow who sets out the doctrine, uh, which is, I think fairly commonly uh, accepted among most most Scots uh, at the time that under certain circumstances it's lawful or even required for uh, subjects or lower uh, officers in a in in the Scottish government to resist their king. James hears this, and uh, I mean he actually disagrees with his tutor <laughs> a little bit, uh, like the tutor is telling him that people are going to be able to resist him. So he comes up with. Uh, the idea of the divine right of kings. This is, you know, during the Reformation, you have lots of people who are reacting against the more feisty uh, Protestants uh, with, uh, with similar kinds of doctrines. Um, there had always been people who uh, resisted uh, uh, people resisting them uh, by saying you should never, ever uh, rebel against a duly constituted highest authority. Um, and uh, James develops, you know, he explains uh, his view that he has authority directly from God. Okay, so uh, the, the big dispute that Rutherford is going to have with his opponents, uh, the, the first thing that he talks about, I mean, probably the first fourth of the of the treatise where does political authority come from does it and of course everything everything we have comes ultimately from god he's the primary cause of all events uh, but we have secondary causes okay so we've got you know the secondary causes of physics that hold books together you got the secondary causes of you know chemistry and biology uh, secondary causes of sociology uh, you have the secondary cause of law okay James says he has authority directly from God. God has told me that I'm a king, and uh, all of you people, everybody else, what they're supposed to do is just recognize that rather than uh, confer authority on the king. So uh, one of the first businesses of the treatise is going to be looking carefully at where exactly authority comes from. Okay. So James VI of Scotland comes up with this, uh, this view in, in kind of uh, reaction to his tutor Buchanan. In 1603, uh, James becomes uh, James I of England when Elizabeth dies. Okay. So uh, he is, you know, suddenly you know, comes down to England. England, in the meantime, has been coming up with... Um, their version of Protestantism. Okay, so Henry VIII uh, rebels against Rome. Uh, uh, Edward VI comes up with a very fiercely Protestant uh, 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 
Book of Common Prayer and materials that that uh, we would like a lot. Mary then comes in uh, as a Roman Catholic, uh, burns all the initial reformers, and then Elizabeth comes in and is uh, is somewhere in the middle. Uh, Certainly closer to Edward than uh, than her father Henry VIII was, but uh, the Puritans, you know, the the term Puritan initially is uh, what do they what do they want to purify? They want to purify uh, the Church of England, tr- purify the Book of Common Prayer, get rid of all the extra uh, uh, Roman Catholic uh, errors that they see uh, uh, still remaining. Okay, so James the first he. When he's James the Sixth of Scotland, I mean, still he's still James the Sixth of Scotland uh, after uh, he comes down and becomes James the First of England. But uh, when he comes to England, he begins to be, so he's you know the the story of the Church of England. The monarch is the head of the church. Okay, so he's the head of the church. He has this new theory that he's the uh, has divine right of kings. He's getting the kingship directly from God rather than through the people or through the law through through Parliament or anything like that. Um, he then decides he has certain views about what the liturgy of the Church of England should be. 1625, he dies, and his son, Charles I, has, so Charles I always says, I'm just trying to do what Elizabeth was doing. I'm, I'm just enforcing the Elizabethan settlement. And almost everybody else says, no, you're not. You're doing, you're doing this in a way more uh, Arminian way, way more, uh, uh, including a lot of a lot of objectionable uh, uh, Roman Catholic elements uh, uh, to it than uh, uh, than than we think. But Charles the uh, first, he decides. So he's got this uh, this Church of uh, England uh, mechanism. One of the so one of the things that the Church of England has is bishops. Okay, so they got an Archbishop of Canterbury who's kind of in charge of, you know, he's under the king, but you know, kind of the king is the head. The Archbishop is the main, you know, kind of actual actual head of, head of things. And then you got all these bishops, and uh, eventually, so these guys are the stewards. Uh, the, so James the first, Charles the first, Charles the second, James the second, the four Stuart kings of England, and the stewards decide we're going to take this English system. Okay, so the England finds themselves with these ki- this king that's ki- they they've taken down from from Scotland, and uh, Scotland then finds itself with this church hierarchy imposed on it by the English people uh, under you know uh, under the head of uh, their supposedly Scottish king. Okay, so uh, Charles decides, you know. We're going to send some bishops uh, up to. We're going to make sure that the Scottish Church has bishops too, and uh, uh, the Scots do not like that. So no bishops. Uh, so may I interject here? Okay, you've got that whole dynamic too. It's really remarkable. We could do this in, I suppose, several different podcasts because of the complexity of the history. But the Church of Scotland founded in simplistic terms, with John Knox, right? And the whole Presbyterian system, anti-Roman Catholic in virtually every respect, anti-bishopric, generally speaking, and that whole unifying of Scotland and England with James I and James VI, that you've got these tenuous relationships politically and, again, theologically. So there's such a dynamic here, and I would uh, suggest it's no 
uh, surprise that Lex Rex is written by Rutherford A. Scott. You know, oh, yeah. As opposed to the Englishman. So all that backdrop here with the interplay of Scotland and its church system versus England and Anglicanism being somewhat of a hybrid to begin with, you know, a lot of folks would say it's kind of Roman Catholicism light and so forth. It's playing into the the whole dynamic. Yeah. So so Archbishop Laud comes in and he's a fierce Arminian. One of the things he does under Charles I is, well, we got to get all these anti-Arminian uh, uh, writings condemned and we got to get the people of Rotom locked up. So because Rutherford had this, I mean, just very fiercely, everything he writes has a fierceness and vividness to it. He was a Scot. Uh, he, and uh, <laughs> in, the, in the context of his letters from prison, it gives it just a, an absolute uh, intoxicating beauty and really spiritual helpfulness. Uh, some of his other writings are not as immediately spiritually helpful, but they, you can tell it's, it's definitely the same guy with the same, same fierceness. Uh, it might be useful to, the way I explain it to my kids, kind of what, what are these uh, ecclesiological differences? So how should the church be organized? Uh, how many levels of office in the church do you have besides elders? Okay, so uh, before, besides, you know, what, what are elders exactly? That's a question. But uh, roughly speaking, you've got the congregationalists who say we should have local elders in a local assembly. Uh, uh, exercising authority over uh, just a group of people who can assemble together uh, at the same time in the same uh, same place. The Presbyterians add uh, elders who have authority over a group of congregations locally. Okay, so you got the Congregationalists, you got the Presbyterians, and that's where Rutherford is. That's where the Scots uh, in general are. The 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 uh, uh, that's where Knox was. Uh, lots of people end up in the Presbyterian camp. The Anglican Church adds a level above the local elder board uh, of bishops. Okay, and then they also add an archbishop. The Roman Catholic hierarchy has not just bishops, but cardinals and the Pope uh, in Rome, of course. So uh, you can kind of think of it as uh, kind of four gradations of you know how many uh, how many levels of middle management do you have? Do you have any middle management? Uh, but but this is the this is the big dispute in and it comes to a head uh, Rutherford's thrown in jail uh, but in 1638 uh, uh, Charles says no you, you know there's you know he initially is kind of hems and haws about whether how much he's going to impose on the Scots but in 1638 he says uh, no you've got to follow the Book of Common Prayer. this is how it's going to be. Uh, there's a, a famous uh, story about a uh, he goes into do a church and and, a, and a, I can't remember how old the, the the girl was picks up a stool and, and, yes. and chucks it at the, at the fellow you're not gonna uh, <laughs> make me listen to a to a Roman mass uh, so the Scots at that point they say in 1638 they say uh, so the Scottish Parliament they get together and they say uh, Charles. Uh, we acknowledge you as our king. We are not attempting to depose you. And, and then 10 years later, they're going to be very upset at the English when they do uh, uh, put him to death, uh, generally. Uh, but the uh, this stuff you're doing about uh, putting bishops in charge of our local congregations uh, is illegal. You're It's unlawful, and you're not allowed to do it. 
they get together and huge numbers of Scots uh, adopt this thing, the, the Solemn League and Covenant, 1638. And then they have a, a short uh, war that basically Charles tries to win but doesn't, uh, the Bishops' War. Uh, the first so, bishops. The first, yeah, first bishops war. There's, you got the first bishops war, the second bishops war, the first, second, and third English civil wars. Um, uh, and yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff you know going going on. But basically, what Rutherford is doing in the book is saying that what we did in 1638 was lawful. Which, by the way, somewhat an example of. The doctrine of the lesser magistrates. Here are these guys, respectfully, as they would say anyway, uh, checking the authority of the king, who they say overstepped his bounds. Yeah, right? so so they say they were, were properly elected. So lots of stuff at the end of the book is going to go into lots of details about exactly who is allowed to summon the Scottish Parliament uh, how frequently they, you know, what they can do once they're summoned. Um, but basically, 1638, you have have some uh, 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 military defeats for the king. The king realizes, I'm going to need uh, some more money if I'm really going to defeat these folks. Um, the king at this point has not convened a parliament in England since 1629. Okay, so this, there's a bunch of history of what's going on with Charles I in, in England. So he's only king, only becomes king. In 1625, uh, so Parliament had gotten upset at James for a lot of things he had done, but they get really upset at, at Charles. And a lot of the things uh, that Parliament has to do, they do right at the beginning of someone's reign. So they they vote them traditionally uh, uh, tonnage and poundage for life. Some all these complicated names for taxes, uh, but uh, they don't do that. And they say, hey, Charles, you know, you're going to have to give us some concessions if you're going to get enough money to, to govern the country. Uh, 1628, you have the petition of right. Uh, but 1629 is the last parliament for 11 years. And then some people call it the 11 years tyranny. Uh, By the way, it's, it's a little bit contrary to our general approach in Congress and the president. There's what they call the honeymoon period, where you pretty much get almost anything you want as the new president, right? And then the uh, contention begins, but here it was yeah. quite the opposite. Yeah. Right? So, so it's got. It's one thing. It's fascinating, just in terms of history. Looking at looking at England versus versus France. So, uh, France, they have this gap in the meeting of of their estates uh, general, essentially their parliament, between like the 1610s and 1789. <laughs> okay, so they're going for like a hundred and. Uh, 170 some years uh, between meetings of parliament. Essentially, that's what happens between 1629 and 1640. The king says, well, "I don't have to have. I don't have to call a, uh, a parliament. I can. I can uh, come up with other ways of getting money." And then there's a bunch of legal disputes about, you know, ship money and the knight's case. Can he just tell people to loan him money? A bunch of bunch of disputes. Eventually, he decides, "I've got to call parliament in 1640." So they have he initially calls a, a parliament uh, called the Short Parliament of 1640. They don't do what he says, so he says, "Ah, uh, you know, heck with you." I, you know, uh, uh, dismisses them. Decide discovers he still does need money. Uh, a few year, a few months later, uh, still 1640, he calls the Long Parliament. Okay, and these these are going to be the people. Um, Twenty years later, the same people, the same people elected in Parliament of 1640, are going to be the people to call back. Uh, Charles II, um, and uh, leading to basically the unpleasantness at the, the very, very end of, of, of Rutherford's life. 
But Parliament uh, uh, comes in. They are just as recalcitrant, probably more recalcitrant than they even were in the 1620s. Eventually, they decide, hey, King, uh, we're not going to uh, allow you to have an army uh, through a bunch of political troubles. Uh, just It's not obvious in 1640 that there, there's going to be a war. But as the negotiations go on, uh, war is going to break out. Okay, Parliament is going to decide we have the authority to come up with our own army. Uh, so Parliament is assuming executive authority that it never had. So in 1644, so that's the, the, the year that we're writing it, uh, they've decided we're going to reform the English church along new lines. Uh, they call in all the, the best minds to do this. Uh, uh, and uh, I think there's no question Rutherford was, was the top, uh, one of the, you know, probably the top Scottish mind, and certainly in thinking about uh, certain of these issues. So he's in, in London, 1644. Uh, uh, the Westminster Assembly is starting its work of deciding what the Church of England is going to look like. Uh, the war is, so there's armies in the field. Okay, so Marston Moors is, is uh, I think, a few months before this, has a, uh, it's an important parliamentary victory. It's not, not final. That's actually where uh, um, Cromwell uh, starts uh, becoming prominent as a leader of cavalry. Uh, so, uh, uh, so he has a, a, a huge uh, 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 cavalry charge, and uh, it shows a certain decisiveness in battle that is eventually going to cause him to be able to uh, win a whole bunch more military victories, including over the Scots, uh, uh, and and take over the government. But 1644, we got armies in the field, a bunch of people saying, this should never have started. And Rutherford says, well, let me give you an explanation why we were right six years ago when we resisted the king. Let me throw in there, Chris, in this just an extraordinary time, it seems to me, in world events, really. So the king summons the parliament because he needs money to fight the Scots. But the parliament basically throws in with the Scots and then it has them over for what is also, I think, just such an historic gathering, right? The Westminster Assembly. And Rutherford is there and the Scots are working with parliament now basically against the king. And you've got the outworkings of the whole Reformation mindset, right? Starting with the revolutionary thinking about God and theology and, you know, soteriology. The whole thing is just so explosive, really, for world events. So the outworkings of that, in, in my view, you've got to—we we talk in Media Gratia about uh, the fundamental work of rethinking God biblically. Well— there's rethinking the church biblically, right? The whole structure and so forth. And that in itself almost ineluctably works itself out in rethinking civil government biblically as well. So there's such a, a mix of deep rethinking of everything in life that's going on here. And Rutherford is right smack in the center of it all. Oh yeah. So I mean, remarkable times to be writing a work like this, and it's no the theoretical treatise. This is his life, his church, his country at issue, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, in the meantime, the Thirty Years' War is waging in Europe. So uh, between you know sixteen eighteen and the Peace of Westphalia in sixteen forty eight, just massive, massive bloodshed between. Uh, Protestant uh, chunks of Europe and uh, uh, the Roman Catholic uh, chunks of, of Europe. One of the big questions 
that people uh, are fussing over. Uh, it's actually the the issue that uh, triggers uh, the beginning of the Thirty Years' War in 1618 in, in Prague. Uh, the Roman Catholic Pope deposes a ruler. So they say, uh, so the Pope has, the Pope in 1215 and in the Fourth Lateran Council has this long description how I'm allowed to decide uh, that a, a ruler isn't sufficiently Christian and call for subjects to rebel uh, against, uh, against him. 1570, uh, the Pope issues this edict saying, I know all you people in England have sworn oaths to support uh, Elizabeth I, but you don't have to keep those. You can go ahead and and rise up uh, against uh, against Elizabeth. Um, uh, so there's there's all these questions about when is it licit for the people or for authorities like uh, like a church or the Roman Catholic uh, hierarchy to call for um, uh, someone to be overthrown. One important name uh, in the intellectual environment is this fellow Hugo Grotius, and he's you know this is somebody who is permanently important in the law. Uh, so, you know, the Supreme Court, they'll quote him uh, or, or cite him on international law quite regular, regularly. He basically invents international law in a treatise in 1625. So this is seven years into the Thirty Years' War. He has a doctrine uh, that uh, says it's never okay to resist constitute authority. It's never okay to disagree uh, with what uh, the head of a, of a local uh, uh, area ha has said. And he's, he's saying, like, look, we've got to come up with, he's a Protestant, but he says we've got to come up with some way uh, to avoid constantly trying to overthrow each other. And uh, Rutherford actually, at, at, at some points, uh, he, has, he has a snarky side. <laughs> Uh, uh, and if you putting you, it lightly, <laughs> yeah. So you know, you know, not as snarky as, as someone like Luther or something. You know, you can get these Luther insult generators uh, that you know has uh, thousands of them. You could go through and search for kind of snarky things he says about this Maxwell fella. But one of the things he says about Maxwell, uh, John Maxwell, the he calls him the the, the popish prelate. Right. Uh, although he's not Roman Catholic, he's right. he's he's Protestant, but he, he that's that's the term he uses for 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 Maxwell. Um, one of the snarky things he says is, well, he's just ripping off Grotius. And as an intellectual, you know, kind of with intellectual concern rather than kind of polemical concern, I, I look at it and I think, well, well, why didn't you just respond to Grotius? The reason he didn't respond to Grotius just directly is Maxwell had just issued in 1644 this treatise, you know, it, you know, in English, uh, telling every telling all the people supporting Parliament, hey. Everything you've been doing since uh, since uh, 1638 is just completely contrary to Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 and the way monarchy was was uh, seen in the in the Old Testament. Uh, so that was the treatise that everybody was reading, and he goes through just I mean point by point uh, through through Maxwell's uh, Max and and I mean you read his preface, uh, and I mean you really it is not a particularly appealing advertisement for reading the rest of it uh, because, uh, I mean, it's a list. It's almost all of the preface. Rutherford's preface is a list of 50 things that are very, very specific wrong about Maxwell's treatise. And you just, you, you can kind of understand, you know, his, his point with, with some of those. But unless you have Maxwell's book right next to you, you're just not going to understand. But he's writing for people who do have Maxwell's book right next to them. And he says, okay, you you know, that's that was uh, appeared just now. Here, here's the next thing, you know, set it, set it side by side and, and, and go uh, uh, into those details. So he's, um, yeah, there's a lot of context that you got to dig through to get to.
One more thing with regard to that reference to Maxwell as the popish prelate. Uh, obviously intentional and meant to smear him, but it does seem to me to capture, too, some of what is going on in this whole cataclysmic time period where the Protestant movement ultimately, certainly simplistically in the Roman Catholic view, can be reduced to the question of authority, right? And the Roman Catholic view with their hierarchical system just aligns like a, a glove fitting over the hand with the monarchical, the Pope is the ultimate authority for the Roman Catholics, the King is the ultimate authority for Maxwell in uh, England, and they love a simple monarchical, one final word sort of system. And the whole notion of Protestantism where we step back and say, wait, it is not inappropriate to question and take everything back to Scripture sort of thing. So I don't think it's wholly unfair for him to refer to him in that way, but it just casts the background, right? The backdrop for what he's arguing here is, in I think Rutherford's view, fundamentally he sees the, the danger of Roman Catholicism and really the attack against the entire Reformation. The, the whole body of thought that he's standing on is embodied and encapsulated in Maxwell's treatise. Yeah, and he, he, wants, to, he wants to be consistent. So he's taking certain things that the, the Protestants had done and saying, look, if you really follow through on these, you're going to have to do a, a lot, lot of additional things. Uh, and really, I mean, so, I mean, we're, we're all, you know, Baptists, and we kind of, we think of, of what our position is, uh, even with respect to people like the, the Presbyterians, uh, the, uh, the most common folks in, in Scotland, say, look, if you really take seriously the, uh, you know, the regulative principle that you're supposed to get rid of any kind of biblical, uh, get get rid of any kind of unbiblical office or unbiblical ceremony, you're gonna have to get rid of uh, the uh, uh, infant baptism. Uh, and you're gonna have to get rid of, you know, because it really doesn't seem, you know, the way the pastoral epistles treat eldership, like you're gonna have uh, more than just a congregation uh, making, uh, uh, leadership decisions about 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 elders. It's going to be uh, a local uh, congregation. So, I mean, we're all inconsistent to some extent. But uh, the the force of the argument is, hey, Protestants, you know, once you take certain steps uh, and say you're not just completely subject to one one ruler for the you know all of Christendom, you've already divided up power. And if you're going to divide up power in different countries, dividing up power within a single country. Uh, is in principle no, not really any different. Well, with that background and all the complexity that's occurring, both religious and um, you know political power struggles, you know we we think of James's statement about divine right, his sons uh, following kind of that trajectory, but going further, being more offensive to Parliament politically as well as to the nation religiously at times, the the Puritan element. Uh, you know, the idea of no bishops, no king. Hey, if we don't have a, a, a bishopric, then the king, how, how will he exercise, you, you know, what will be the arm of the king in the significant arena of religion at that time, especially, how will the king really rule if we don't have the church under control? And the church under control is going to require bishops who are faithful to James or Charles. So with all of that going on and understanding that background, we need to jump into what are the main thoughts 
and the main uh, points of Lexrex itself. So, you know, some people might think, uh, <laughs> oh, you know, Rutherford, he's just, he's never read Romans 13 or, yeah, or right. 1 Peter 2, uh, the very first page of the treatise. He he mentions uh, mentions the two of those. Obviously, uh, the uh, submission to the authorities, submission to the emperor and ministers sent by the emperor is, is very central to uh how he's going to think. He's not going to explain those passages themselves uh, for 100 pages or so. Yeah. What is he starting with? He's starting with the rules for kingship under the Old Covenant. Um, and here it's, it's very interesting. Um, the general hermeneutic or interpretive uh, approach he takes, um, I think it, it seems like it's common ground to both Rutherford and his opponents, uh, that when we look at the uh, way that Israel organized its kingship, we're supposed to extract the general principles of it. So there's certain things that are clearly inapplicable. Uh, from So Deuteronomy 17 is the most straightforward uh, teaching in the Old Covenant about you know what they would do if they had a king. So these are rules for a hypothetical right. future king. And that's one of the, one of Rutherford's big points is it is it is hypothetical. But uh, you know, for instance, one of the rules in it is you may not put a foreigner over you who's not your brother. Well, obviously the English aren't supposed to find uh, you know, some Israelite, uh, uh, a Jewish person to put on their own throne. And, you know, this isn't saying like, oh, there's some sort of racial demand that every, every nation has, you know, it, you find it's, it's brother, not a, not a, not a foreigner. What they're doing is uh, taking the civil law and they're abstracting up to figure out what that civil law says about the enduring moral law. So uh, the way they're going to say it in the uh, Westminster Convention in the 1640s is uh, the moral law is continuing to be binding. Uh, the ceremonial law is not. Ceremonial law points forward to, to Christ. Uh, and once Christ has come, we don't have that. So you know, Mark 7, 19, Jesus declares all foods clean. Okay. And then the Westminster Confession talks about the judicial law. I think we would probably call the, the, the civil law as well. It says the judicial law for the nation of Israel is not binding except insofar as uh, the general equity thereof. Uh, uh, basically, the way I would understand that, I would say the general equity of the civil law is the information that the civil law gives us about the moral law. Yeah, the application, really, of the moral law. Right, right. And uh, so when we look at Deuteronomy 17, we're taking it very, very seriously because uh, obviously God would never tell Israel to do something that would violate the moral law. The enduring moral law is going to be, uh, was applicable at the time of Deuteronomy 17, and it's going to be applicable 400 years later when they actually do have a king. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so, you know, rather than looking, you know, you know, just at, at Rutherford, who's, there's a lot of context, but I mean, he appeals over and over to Deuteronomy 17. I think it would make sense just to, just to look at, at Deuteronomy 17 was, itself. Yeah. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you. By the way, you're starting in verse 14. Verse 14, yeah, Deuteronomy 17, 14. 
Uh, FF, following. Okay. Uh, when you come to the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. Okay, so <laughs> just you know, just stop with those two phrases. Yeah. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One of the big disputes, that, I mean, lots and lots of discussion of the details of exactly how those two parts work together and how they work together with Saul and with David. And then, uh, I mean, later there's a, a kind of a, a reestablishment under Joash following Athaliah's uh, uh, takeover of power. Uh, but you have these times where kings are specifically set over the nation of Israel. The anointing of these people uh, takes place at a different time. Okay. So, for you know, we were talking a minute ago during the break about uh, Charles III. He has this coronation ceremony, and there's one point where they have an anointing of the king. May I just say, for those that, that aren't familiar, Charles III being the current king. Yeah, current of king of England. Yeah. Current <laughs> king of England. Uh, he became king uh, as soon as his, his mother died. He wasn't uh, anointed to become king before then, uh, but he had been king. And uh, the way that um, I think it's Alfred the Great put together all these ceremonies in the, in the 8th century or whenever uh, for the, the kingdom that became the king of England, uh, king of the kingdom of England, uh, uh, he put, a, put an anointing in it specifically in imitation of uh, the way the Israelite uh, kingdom was, was organized. So one of, one of Rutherford's big points is the anointing itself, when God picks David or picks Saul, uh, I mean, picks David's, David's house, so Joash is, you know, everybody understands Joash is supposed to be the king, but that's different from actually becoming king. And you can tell this really just looking at 1 Samuel. Uh, the way that uh, uh, it works with uh, Saul, uh, you remember he's uh, he's running off looking for his his lost uh, lost sheep or goats or something, and uh, runs into Samuel. Well, they, they they think, oh, well, we're we're going to find our sheep. Like, oh, there's a prophet, Samuel. Let's talk to Samuel. Uh, they talk to Samuel, and uh, Samuel anoints him, and he doesn't say, "I hereby make you king." He says, "You will be king." Saul goes home, and they say, "Oh, you know, did you, anything interesting happen while you were off looking?" So, "Oh, we met the, we met a prophet." Oh, what did the prophet say? Well, he said the sheep had been found. Okay, uh, uh, he doesn't act as king at that point. Right. It's only later. I mean, it's the next next scene in in uh, in First Samuel. Only later that he actually becomes king. He only exercises authority, starts doing the things that the, he starts doing the job of the king, which is, I mean protecting and defending his people uh, again and and uh, supplying public order within within the nation. Um, David is of course as well there's a long exactly. long long gap okay yeah. he's you know uh, uh, Saul is rejected as king but he is still king right. So when David is anointed, that's different from him actually receiving authority as king to issue decrees and have people uh, uh, you know, to doing the job of a king, which is defending Israel, uh, defending defending the nation against outside, uh, you know, all enemies, foreign and domestic, as it were, 
uh, the way the American language would put it, uh, but defending Israel against uh, foreign enemies and supplying public order within Israel. Which is really a, a significant uh, distinction, as we see in Rutherford. But, you know, when you're just reading through Scripture, you don't stop and think too much about, well, wait a minute, David anointed king, but when does he really become king and exercise those royal prerogatives? It, but it is enormously significant in yeah. the context of this kind of discussion, right? And outside of Israel, we have examples like that too. We have uh, Jehu, who's who's anointed uh, before he comes in and takes over the northern kingdom. We have a king of uh, of uh, Syria uh, that is anointed before he uh, uh, goes in and take over, and that's that's different. Uh, those are you know actually possessing authority and being told by God that he will exercise authority. Are are different things, um, and this is a this is a bell that the Rutherford rings many many times, uh, and uh, there is just, some repetition in there. Yeah, there? Uh, uh, but it's it's repetition, you know, in different context, and it's you know, one thing. I mean, it really is a, just a magisterial tour de force about thinking very thoroughly and uh, biblically, as biblically as he can. Given given his perspective, given the the arguments that he has available to to, to think through, uh, he he really just wants to think through as many details as he possibly can. Look at it. Look at all the counter arguments that that he can, uh, from whatever perspective he can, uh, to to make sure that he's he's considering. You know, he's squeezing the scriptures of every last drop of insight that he can yeah. about the nature of political authority. Let me just throw in there too. Chris, I mean, you mentioned some of the critics as if maybe he hadn't considered some of these seminal biblical passages. But the truth is, it is an extraordinary work insofar as its uh, scholarship and the depth of his command, not only of Scripture, but it's written in four languages ultimately, right? You've obviously got the English, but he's always referring to Latin. He goes to the Greek. He goes to the Hebrew. It's just remarkable what a, uh, a command he has. Historically, I don't know of any authority that he overlooks. Uh, and, you know, he didn't have uh, Google at his fingertips and the, the resources that we have with the smartphones and devices. It's just extraordinary. By the way, I mean, among others, of course, he cites Plato and Aristotle, whom he calls somewhat in the Spurgeon-esque way of describing Rutherford, the flower of nature's wit. <laughs> I just love that. Yeah, he, he actually <laughs> cites um, one huge classical influence uh, in the background here is Cicero. Yes. So Cicero has this phrase, um, uh, I'm going to butcher the Latin, uh, but uh, salus uh, populi suprema lex, uh, the welfare of the people is the supreme law. Uh, at one point- Critical. Uh, yeah, yeah, at one point yeah. Rutherford says- uh, that this is part of the 12 tables of Roman law. I think he's wrong historically about that, but it's a very well... So uh, basically, the uh, uh, European intellectual scene starts getting really obsessed about Cicero. So Cicero is around the time of the fall of the Republic. Uh, he's, you know, he opposes uh, 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 Caesar in certain ways and then gets... Anyway, a bunch of Ciceronian stuff. But this principle that what government is supposed to do is promote the welfare of all people within the realm. Uh, everybody acknowledges that. Essentially, what the what people like Charles were saying was, well, I get to decide right. what's in the welfare of the people. And he would use that kind of phrase 
As like, well, I get to override any positive law that parliament has, has established. So I said, well, you know, the, you know, the parliament says that, but really the supreme law is the welfare of the people. So I get to decide that. Uh, but Rutherford, you know, very much doesn't disagree with the welfare of the people being the, the supreme law. Yes. And it's, you know, this is all over, uh, really beginning in the late 1500s. Uh, it's just, just all over European intellectual thought. Um, so you've got classical influence. You've got a very, very detailed look at the at the at the Old Testament, and you know, I you know, we'll, we'll get to the you know what he says about the uh, uh, the New Testament. One very important episode that Rutherford highlights is this uh, episode with Uzziah. Uh, so we uh, most uh, I think uh, most people remember Uzziah chiefly from uh, remembering when he died. So Isaiah six. Uh, uh, begins in the year that King Uzziah died, and you know our study Bibles usually have a footnote saying, "Okay, this is BC 740." Uh, so you got to anchor like, "Okay, this is 18 years before the Northern Kingdom is gonna be destroyed by the Assyrians." It's you know 160 some years before the the Southern Kingdom is destroyed. Uzziah is one of a series of kings uh, who are. Uh, I think usually classified as mostly good. Sometimes you'll you know find the the list of the kings of Israel and Judah uh, in the back, and they'll they'll sometimes be indicated. You know, well there's you know there's Josiah at the very top. There's Hezekiah right underneath that. There's kind of Asa and Jehoshaphat who were uh, earlier uh, kind of uh, uh, below there, and then there's this kind of next tier of of mostly uh, good kings. Uh, uh, most of whom start out very well, do some very important things, and then end in uh, ways that are quite unfortunate. Okay, and one of those is Uzziah. So what happens to Uzziah? Uh, I think I'll just, just read from, this is 2 Chronicles 26, 16. Um, I'm just, just, you know, begins with a, with a, uh, a beautifully concise warning. When he was strong, he grew proud, to his destruction. Um, four, so this is Uzziah, he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry at the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out, because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. So one question Rutherford has is, well, if you took what Charles was saying seriously, if you took what Maxwell uh, was saying seriously, um, God should have <laughs> struck the priests with a plague yeah. because they were the ones, the lesser magistrates, yeah. as it were, telling the king, the king. This, yeah. isn't, uh, this isn't for you to do. Uh, so the, the kingdom of Israel had a separation of powers within it. 
Uh, it was very, very different from uh, the American separation of powers, the English separation of powers, but it was a separation of powers between king and priest. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, we're looking at this not just to understand uh, politics, but Christ is both prophet, priest, and king. Uh, he's the only one who has all of these offices together. He's the only one we can trust with having all these offices together. Uh, just because you're a king doesn't mean you can tell the priests or the prophets what to do. So the, the Uzziah episode is extremely uh, uh, important. Uh, basically, what Rutherford does, he takes kind of all of his, all of his, uh, you know, takes the Deuteronomy 17. He takes the the history of the the kingship. Um, when when Samuel makes Saul king, he lists a number. He gives a, a description of what the king will do. That the Maxwell Grotius types, uh, they said, oh, this is establishing a normative guide right. that if the king wants to take all your sons and daughters and have crazy high taxes, he's allowed to do that. He has a right to do so, that. So yeah. you know, that's that's one of the things. But basically, every every time uh, he's, he's coming up with these arguments, he'll run through all of these and think, well, what does that biblical passage say about uh, about that matter? Uh, and he's, you know, he's, you know, I mean, I guess if we had a drinking game, it wouldn't be with with anything serious. If we had like a coffee drinking game, you could have a. Every time he says Uzziah, take a sip of your espresso. Uh, but it, Is there's that there's a lot of Uzziah references. Final cut here? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. We uh, some folks are like, yes, I want to have stogies and beer. But, okay, oh, but mercy. if you there's a there's an awful lot of references to Uzziah. A lot, yeah. I mean that repetition. Um, and if I can go back to Chris, I mean, you started in uh, Deuteronomy 17. I don't know if you want to return there or not, but and, and even if we don't, but the examples of the anointing versus the actual um, empowerment and and vice versa, where the role of the people becomes such a critical question for Rutherford, and he would elevate it and say, "You're not a king until, as with David, you enter into a covenant with the people," sort of thing. And again, contextually, you've got the whole Scottish and English history with its own constitutional background and that uh, fact that the king doesn't just assume absolute power. I mean, it's clear that he is limited in the English system, right? And it sort of begs the question, scripturally, does he have to be or can he just assume, as James would have argued, the divine right of kings kind of thing. That's right. When David is anointed, when Saul uh, is anointed, but it's very clear with, with David, David does not just walk in and assert his kingship directly. He, I mean, he very, uh, uh, very pointedly, prominent, pointedly yeah. has the opportunity to. Yes. Okay, so the way that lots of kings behave uh, when they get the person they're trying to depose in their sights, when they get the person they think that they are uh, properly situated to replace in their sights, they kill them. Maybe a Jehu sort of thing. Yeah, that's how Jehu uh, does it. That's how um, that's how William the Conqueror does it, uh, uh, killing Harold at the Battle of Hastings. That's how Henry VII does it, killing Richard III. Uh, that's how countless numbers of, uh, if you look at the Northern Kingdom, it's got 10 separate dynasties, every single one of which was founded by somebody who killed the last king from the predecessor. 
None okay. of whom, by the way, are listed in those godly king. Yeah, uh, yeah. So there's, so you might, remember, you know, the, the so, southern kings of uh, southern kingdom has uh, some good kings yeah. of, of various uh, various levels of goodness. Some, about half of them are terrible. But uh, the northern kingdom, every single one of them is terrible, including Jehu, who's used by God as an instrument to punish the house right. of of, uh, of of Omri and Ahab. Uh, but um, but it's just very clear from how David behaves that. It is one thing to be told that you are the man for this job and another to actually assume it. What is involved in assuming it, it is not perfectly clear what exactly the people have to do to make someone a king. We don't want to read, we don't, so this is a 17th century document. Rutherford is not a radical leveler. So the levelers in the 1640s they come in and they say, we need to have suffrage. We need to have voting that is complete, you know, much more widespread. We, sh we shouldn't have any property requirements. We shouldn't have any, I mean, they're really, they're trying to level uh, a lot of distinctions. Uh, they say, you know, they sound, they sound a little bit like um, Americans of the 1820s. What I'm All of. power comes from the people. And unless you get your power from a vote, a specific vote with ballots uh, telling uh, you that you have authority, you can't exercise authority. We don't want to read Rutherford anachronistically as some sort of uh, radical proponent of democracy. He's not saying that the people have to vote for a king, but the people are the ones over whom the king has authority. And by recognizing the king's authority, by or giving the king authority, by having that relationship of uh, uh, so a lot a lot of times at the time they'll talk about uh, uh, the reciprocal uh, uh, duties of allegiance and protection. By giving allegiance to the king, uh, they are become entitled to the king's protection, and by protecting the people, uh, the king becomes entitled to their allegiance. Uh, and this is you know when you know when Saul comes in and starts doing the job of the king, protecting them, that's when people start having to obey him to the extent that he's not acting unlawfully. And doing so willingly. Yeah, because, and they do, they do so yeah, willingly. Right, yeah. right. It's not uh, not something... Uh, so the world of the Old Testament, sometimes, you know, people who, don't, people who don't actually read it carefully might say, well, it's just, you know, dog eat dog. And there's this famous line from the... Uh, 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 it's it, it's attributed to the Athenians going to going to Sicily, and they uh, so there's this line: the strong do what they will, and the weak endure what they must. Uh, so you might think, well, it's just this you know barbaric yeah. prehistoric Stone Age nonsense where people are just fighting and just taking power. That's not what's going on in the in the in the Old Testament. That's never you know kings of England. Sometimes they take power violently. Uh, and illegitimately sometimes, but they never on their face say, oh yeah, what we're doing is just doing the things we can do because we're strong. Might makes right. Might make, yeah, it's not a might makes right uh, uh, view of the world. Um, and it's not, you know, it's also not the king just hearing from God or getting, you know, having a divine anointing uh, that authorizes him just on that basis yes. to go tell people what to do. It's through lawful procedures uh, lawful, just the law of the people submitting to the king under certain circumstances, but not 
every circumstance. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, John's been preaching through the primacy of the moral law, one might say, uh, in, in our own church services. And it seems to me that that's another theme that sort of pervades Romans 13, as well as the treatment here of the king's, the limits on the king's authority in both Old Testament and New, although, again, the examples are much more uh, poignant and, and well drawn out in the Old Testament. But that, that there is a limit, clearly, right? If, if all power uh, is from God and the king's power is delegated, uh, which clearly it is, then implicitly that means there have to be limits, right? So I think Rutherford's foundation here is so much stronger than Maxwell's ultimately. And the difficulty comes, in my view, how you apply that, and as you were saying, too, in the Old Testament examples, it's far from really explicit in every point. You just have to kind of infer a lot of principles from what we have played out in the actual examples. Right? Yeah, that's right. We don't, we don't have any you know, uh, explicit— It's not a black-letter kind of situation. Yeah, there's not, a, there's not a, an official pronouncement right. uh, from—God God doesn't you know, send a prophet to say what my priest did here was proper. Right. And uh, uh, they have to infer, like, well, what's going on with this? Pro-? You know, it's not a, not a word. It's just the leprosy that yeah. Uzziah gets. Uh, but um, I think it would be good. You know, let's, we can look at uh, the New Testament. The, and the key two, the two key uh, passages, of course, are, are Romans 13 sure. and uh, 1 Peter 2 uh, and see uh, what his, uh, you, know, you know, what about those, uh, Rutherford? Um, and he's, the, the basic point that he makes, it's pretty simple. It's just the difference between singular and plural. Uh, so Romans 13, starting in verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. It's plural. Good. Okay? Right. For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Those that exist have, you know, the plural. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities... Resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Okay, now, your translation in verse 2 is plural. Mine is singular. Oh, my goodness. So, <laughs> so that's... Whoever resists authority, but it's still sort of a generic authority, not the authority. Okay, well, this is interesting. So uh, we should say you're, you've got the NAS 95. Yes. Is, yes. is that the... Uh, the we, certain people very concerned about different... <laughs> different uh, uh, yeah, yeah. versions of the NAS. Uh, this is the English Standard uh, version. Yeah. Rutherford does make the point about the plurality of the authorities. And uh, I I think rightly so. And it, yeah, it, that becomes, again, another major uh, sub-theme throughout this treatise, right? Whether the king alone has that kind of authority from God, or do the lesser magistrates, the judges, and so forth, also enjoy that authority? Yeah. I should say, you know, even if it is singular— you can understand. So if you no, if you're if you're if you're out, you know, you know. So you're in Rome, uh, and you're looking at uh, uh, the, you know, the authority around you. Yeah. Well, in one sense, you might say, well, who is the authority? If you're looking for a person, you might say, well, the, the authority is the is the the emperor. It's 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 near. It's it's that's a bad guy. Okay. Uh, uh, in this in the 17th century, uh, people would say like, if you had a dime for every time. These Anglican uh, folks uh, uh, supporting the Stuarts uh, mentioned that Romans 13 was written when Nero was emperor. You know, you could be rich, uh, but uh, uh, if you're looking at 
authority around you just as a quality, well, Nero has some of it. His his officers have some of it. Um, and uh, then, then, you know, later in the sentence, you know, the plural, uh, I think, uh, thing comes in. But his, his point is, well, okay, the people of Scotland are supposed to be subject to the governing authorities uh, or the authority wherever, however it's distributed. Mm-hmm. Some of it is in the Stuart King and some of it is in the Scottish Parliament. Exactly. So the lesser magistrates have uh, have uh, uh, an element of this as well, and this is this is I mean even even clearer. Um, it's explicitly made in in First Peter two. Uh, so First Peter uh, uh, two, uh, this is uh, verse uh, thirteen and, and following. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do good and to praise uh, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Um, in Romans 13, it talks about the same thing. You have exactly. this standard of good and evil uh, which uh, exists and the, the secular authorities are supposed to uh, uh, supposed to uh, enforce. But, but it's, it's very clear. You, you know, if the governor comes comes to you and says, well, you know, it's time to pay your taxes, the tax rate is this, you're not supposed to resist that governor, but it's, oh, but the, the emperor said it was 7.5%, not 8.5%. You, know, yeah, yeah. uh, uh, you, you have to obey the governors as well. And uh, uh, it, you know, if, if, if the governors have authority to say that what the emperor has actually said is unlawful, okay, it's going gonna, it's gonna to also be, uh, it's going to be a question. It's going to be a contingent question right. whether the most prominent person has in fact behaved Lawfully in giving orders to subordinates, uh, and of course, this is you know this is a world where you've got people you know hundreds of miles away. It's going to take uh, a considerable amount of time for just for information right. uh, to get back. So you 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 have an have an inherent plurality uh, between London and, and Scotland. You have the same uh, obvious delay that is going to uh, going to produce. Uh, you, you have a multiplicity of authority just by by technological uh, imperative uh, uh, as much as anything. Uh, but basically, Rutherford is going to give that explanation that you have um, you have multiple authorities. So right. if you're trying to explain why it's wrong for the Scottish Parliament to disagree with King Charles in 1638, you're going to have to do something other than just to put, appeal to these things that explicitly have yeah. references to multiple authorities. Um, one big uh, element of of how Rutherford thinks about the New Testament uh, is to talk about uh, flight from authority. So yes. a point he makes yes. over and yeah. over, he says, if the authorities tell you to turn yourself in and you say no, but you know, run somewhere else, that's disobeying them. And uh, it's not perfectly clear in Luke 13, but it, you know, so Luke 13 uh, some people come to Jesus. So these are some, uh, the Pharisees don't come out uh, too well in, uh, in a lot of the New Testament, but these are some, these are some okay Pharisees. Uh, some Pharisees, uh, so uh, Luke 13, 31, that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to him, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Uh, is he fleeing Herod like the Pharisees told him to do? Not perfectly obvious, but in Nazareth, he's uh, 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 a mob attempts to, to throw him off a brow. 
Are they governing authorities? Not perfectly clear, but he he does not have a problem with uh, with leaving. And in Matthew 10, uh, he says explicitly, if they persecute you in one town, flee to uh, the next. Um, and then you have the example of Paul, uh, you know, so. So right. Paul in Damascus, uh, he, he, he goes right after his conversion and he uh, he's uh, uh, the authorities in Damascus. Uh, I think it actually says the governor uh, of, of Damascus is is looking for Paul, uh, uh, and he sneaks out and is is let out through a basket. Dramatic fashion, yeah. So it's obvious just looking at the New Testament. What is their attitude toward the Roman Empire? They're not uh, running around attempting to overthrow it, but they also are not afraid to disobey its commands. Mm-hmm. Um, in response, in, in obedience to the command to preach the gospel uh, to every creature, which which they're given in in Matthew twenty eight, and also they're willing to do so even though they don't have specific commands. So uh, sometimes Paul is very upfront. He's like, "Yeah, you know, arrest me," but sometimes he's not. That's right. Uh, and he doesn't. There's no indication that he has a specific command. Uh, to you know, to to leave Damascus without uh, uh, turning himself in. Yeah. Uh, no indication, uh, uh, other than the general thing in, in Matthew ten, you know, that they're supposed to leave particular cities and go go particular places. But the early church was was you know didn't have a problem uh, saying I'm I'm going to flee. This is part of obeying uh, uh, the command in in Acts five. We must obey God rather than men in yeah. certain circumstances. And didn't you take it? Some of Maxwell's argument seems to have been, okay, you can flee, but what you can't do is actually take up arms. And even, you know, we get into the defensive war kind of uh, discussion here. And so Rutherford goes the extra mile again in looking, for instance, at David. I mean, taking Goliath's sword. Uh, That isn't exactly just fleeing and, and taking no thought of a defensive taking up of arms. I mean, literally, it was taking up arms. So there's that whole kind of sub-argument uh, here, too. Yeah, so there's, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of, yeah, bunch of gradations, right, gradations. Uh, that uh, people you know, might try to make. So uh, you know, fleeing and prevent, you know, doing things actively to prevent the government from doing things to you. Yes. Um, Taking defensive, me- you know, so you know, if you flee, you know, what can you do? Can you build yourself a fortress? Okay. Can you, uh, you know, put sharp sticks on the outside so that if people try to attack you, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll run it. You know, so there's kind of, you know, li- defensive measures that are like just purely a barrier. You know, defensive measures that might be painful to overcome. Uh, defensive measures about, uh, uh, you know, picking up a sword, you know, defensively. And uh, you know, actually going out and and using it to you know, somebody comes to to arrest you uh, and picks up a sword. Can you uh, can you defend yourself? Um, these are these are questions that are still yes, uh, difficult so. questions of self defense in both uh, kind of domestic uh, law, just the law of self defense, and also the law of international uh, war. So it's so, uh, a the the laws about preemptive self defense. Yes. Uh, so there's a war raging uh, uh, in Israel right now. A big, huge question in 1967, uh, the Six Day War. Uh, they 
know an attack is coming, but Israel preemptively does. It. So there's all kinds of, I mean, it's a whole branch of ethics of, you know, when exactly is, is preemptive uh, war allowed? When is defensive force allowed? Um, and Rutherford over and over again, he says, this is a defensive war. Yes. Charles is the one who started right. it. You started it. Yeah. <laughs> Notwithstanding that, you're still acting against, when you're using force, really, anytime you're using force, you're using force to prevent somebody from attacking you. It's not just to retaliate against an attack in the past. And the, the illustration I always uh, used to use uh, when I was uh, explaining this in, uh, uh, frequently for in my philosophy days, uh, somebody who's run out of bullets, okay? So somebody who is shooting at you, or you know, maybe, Maybe shooting shooting arrows at you. Um, you see, you know somebody uh, coming coming at you, and uh, he's got a bunch of arrows, and you've got a bunch of arrows too. Uh, he shoots an arrow at you. You're like, ah, he's attacking me. Shoots another, ah. And you think, well, I, I gotta, you know, it's either kill or be killed here. Uh, I can I can take an arrow and uh, I can uh, take him down before he shoots another. What if he's just shot his last arrow though? So you've got an arrow coming at you, uh, and you you could shoot the guy. At that point, it's just retaliatory. So if it's just based on what he's done in the, if it's purely based on what he's done in the past, it's not actually defensive force. You're not preventing him from attacking you further. Yeah. You're just retaliating for for what he's done in the past. And there, you know, there's rules about international law about when retaliation as such is is allowed, but Anytime you're using force, you're acting in light of future things that somebody else might be doing. So if people from uh, Scotland are going to prevent the English army from, from you know, imposing their, their bishops or doing whatever, whatever they want to do, they're acting against a future thing. They're not merely uh, acting in response to, to something in the past. So... Um, Rutherford doesn't get you know into that a lot, but he does repeatedly emphasize this is a defensive war. Uh, one thing to remember in general about Rutherford's treatise: it's a limited, very limited thesis. He's not you know so Calvin never said that just any lesser magistrate can at any time right. resist any unlawful authority. Uh, Rutherford is not saying that just any Scotsman or any person or any official. Uh, can resist any unlawful authority. He's just just saying, in principle, it's possible for there be a situation where sometimes you can resist uh, the uh, the the authorities that are that are that are set above you. Um, you know whether the 1638 uh, situation was a uh, an instance of that. You've got to get into a whole bunch of Scottish history, which he will do at the end. Uh, but it, it really it depends on the depends on the particulars. Right. Uh, what kinds of, of wars you can, uh, what kind of wars you can wage. Um, I think, you know, I think the analogy that's implicit in a lot of the talk of defensive war uh, is just between boundaries between countries and boundaries inside a country. So, you know, if you're a king of England, that doesn't give you authority to tell people in France what to do. Nobody would think yeah. like, you know, people in Paris have a duty to obey uh, uh, the king of England, just because he's the governing authority. He's the governing authority of a limited realm. Okay. Well, the, the Scots say, 
you know, I mean, literally within within Britain, there's a, the boundary between England and, and Scotland. But the Scottish, and they, they say, yeah, yeah, he's the king of Scotland too. But within the sphere of, of governmental authority in Scotland, um, there are these boundaries, right. okay? And just as, you know, it's, it's just as real a boundary, uh, might be a little harder to, to discern as the English Channel, okay? And uh, if you step across a boundary uh, illegally, you're going to subject yourself to uh, the permissibility of defensive force uh, against that, um, even if it means assembling an army. And in fact, I think one of the principles, again, that kind of undergirds his argument is he refers basically to natural law and the right of a man to protect himself and his family. And when you're invading my sphere, I have every right to resist, at least in some comparable fashion, as you say, whether it's, you know, lethal force and so forth you can get into. But uh, that is universally acknowledged, at least at Rutherford's time. Uh, today, we, we have disputes about natural law and so forth, too. But it, it, you know, there's a simplicity in that argument that sort of carries through, and everybody will go, well, of course. And he often cites the extremes of Charles taking up the band of uh, bloodthirsty Irishmen that are coming and literally invading our, our uh, people. So there is, as you say, that theoretical side that he's talking about maybe someday. On the other hand, they're living through the actual war, the English Civil War and so forth, that uh, is waging and raging all around them. That's right. And they, so everybody would acknowledge there's a natural right of self-defense. If there is no government, you're going to have to do that yourself. The, the question is the extent to which when you've got a government, people have either explicitly or implicitly given up their natural right of self-defense. Right. And the Stuart argument, the Maxwell argument is uh, you've given it up uh, to the extent the government says, absolutely, says they really, have. You, yeah, yeah. In terms of self-defense against the government, you've you've, you've really given it, uh, given it up entirely. And Rutherford's point is, no, there's nothing in the establishment of a government that has affected any kind of alienation like that. And he even goes so far as to say, it is impossible for one to cede that absolute authority. You know, it is inherent in man to retain the right of self-defense. Yeah, if the government is attacking you with sufficient illegality and sufficient immorality, right. Right. they simply in virtue of that fact have returned you to a state of nature. Yeah. Uh, so if you have the right of, of self-defense in a state of nature, uh, you would have it under the extreme circumstances uh, in which the government uh, returns you to one. Um, I don't know if there's anything else in the in the book itself that we want to want to get into. I just want to mention I, I found it amusing. One of the questions, and I didn't write down which one it was. Uh, about two thirds of the way, three quarters of the way through, um, asks the age old uh, question: What is the best form of government? And one would think Rutherford, being a Scotsman and all, would say, "Of course, monarchy." But he doesn't actually say that, and so uh, he is keenly aware of the limitations of the monarchy, especially when they assume an absolutist sort of approach to rule uh, and, and brings in some of the principles, again, that our founders, I think, built off of and the notion of checks and balances, uh, obviously not his language, but the idea that one man, I think uh, Calvin said something similar, uh, vested with a more or less absolute authority as a sinful fallen creature 
is a very dangerous thing. And so uh, there, there are, there's a lot of that. Maybe we should, this is a transition moment to talk about the legacy of Lex Rex and how others have built on Rutherford's work. One other thing I just want to say, I think this was somewhat historical, contextual, and, and so forth. But the fact is, Lex Rex was never formally refuted, right? They wanted to burn it, not actually answer his arguments. So it's a curious sort of uh, historical uh, oddity as it fell out. That's right. That's right. So we can, so, you know, this is 1644. We can kind of just, you know, get a little more of the, of the historical narrative. Yeah. Um, the English are at this point. So in the subtitle, it says, you know, are they are the Scots uh, justified in coming to the aid of their English English brothers and, and helping? So the English and Scots work together in the first English Civil War. Uh, the Scots actually capture the king and then give the, so this is Charles I, give the king over to parliament. Um, then some people in Scotland decide, uh, wait a minute, uh, you're you've 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 taken the king captive. He's not going to act as a free agent at all. Uh, I thought what we were trying to do was get him to behave, to right. be king in a proper manner. Some Scots uh, fight on behalf of Charles I in the Second uh, uh, English Civil War. I mean, I guess it's you know there's it's Scots versus versus English then. Then in 1649. Uh, the uh, parliament decides, well, you know, we think that Charles I is uh, guilty of treason. He's guilty of high treason, which traditionally is uh, treason against the king. And a bunch of people yeah, say, how right, can the right. king be against himself? Uh, so they say, well, and it also includes uh, treason against the state. The state. So in 1649, they put him to death. And parliament, the English parliament, at that point says, and you know what? We don't, we don't want to have a monarch anymore. We find it, it's useful at certain times, yeah. and uh, this is no longer one of them. Rutherford, when, they, when, he, when he talks about what's the best form of government, and he says sometimes it's monarchy, sometimes it's not. Right. Uh, and uh, the English uh, Parliament says uh, we think it's 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 uh, time for it not to be. So if you go around it, we, we uh, our family visited England uh, uh, last uh, summer, or a year year and a bit ago. Uh, and you go to lots of places and uh, they say, oh, yeah, you know, in 1649, they destroyed a bunch of, of basic, uh, you know, basic artifacts of the monarchy. All the current stuff is just from 1660. OK. So Charles is put to death. Then Charles II, uh, a bunch of Scots people, Scotsmen say, oh, well, we, you know, we've never wanted to get rid of the, We never wanted to get rid of the king. Right. We've got a new king. It's Charles II. Charles II actually then fights alongside certain Scots in the Third English Civil War. And if you look at the, the history of, uh, of the, the Scottish folks, I mean, it is, I mean, at a distance of, of, of uh, several hundred years, it, yes. it's it perhaps more amusing than it was at the time, yes. but uh, very, very, very sharp disputes among, so these are among people who, all of whom want to fight on behalf of Charles II against the English, but some of them say, we should not have been fighting against the English uh, on behalf of Charles I, and all those people who did have got to be excluded from the army. And Rutherford, he's in the party at that point uh, that wants to 
I mean, a bunch of the, all the Scots want to fight against the English, but he wants to uh, do so uh, without the assistance of the people who who fought him. I have Charles I. So, uh, yeah, it's the kind of kind of attitude that it's 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 makes it difficult to win a war uh, when you when you're excluding uh, people on on these kinds of ground. But it it absolutely fits with his just just fierceness in uh, pursuing the right as as he sees uh, sees what the right thing to do is. Um, Short story about the, the third English Civil War is uh, Cromwell wins uh, huge decisive victories uh, uh, both on September 3rd, so September 3rd, uh, 1650, September 3rd, 1651, uh, and then unites uh, all three, you know, he's, uh, uh, Cromwell's in charge. Um, he works with, with Parliament, gets upset with Parliament, not dissolving itself and calling another parliament, so uh, leaves. And then we have these other things, these Cromwellian parliaments. Uh, uh, and it, I mean, it's it's interesting. Cromwell is, uh, I, I was uh, I was in England one time, just sitting there reading this massive biography of Cromwell, and, and somebody came up, uh, and this is in Cambridge, where uh, Cromwell was from. He was kind of their, you know, one of their heroes. They're like, oh, Cromwell. He's just, you know, good guy. Uh, a uh, bit of a tyrant. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I thought it was wonderfully charming that someone could be a bit of a tyrant, uh, but 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 also be seen as a, a good guy. Reli- there's a lot more religious liberty uh, under Cromwell than there is at, at any other time. Cromwell is, uh, he's an independent, uh, so a lot more like us than uh, like the, the Presbyterians. Um, but he is, he's in charge. He's a very decisive uh, a ruler, you know, just he's able to, uh, to set things set things up. And they're like, yeah, you have religious liberty. You can you discuss discuss what you want. You know, as long as uh, I'm perfectly confident that I can defeat you people in battle, which I am, uh, uh, it's 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 not going to be uh, uh, not going to be a problem. But when he dies in 1658, leaves his son who is just just nowhere uh, uh, near uh, as able politically or militarily. Uh, he actually has a son-in-law. Uh, Ireton, uh, who is uh, really very, very talented, uh, that initially uh, in the uh, 1640s, uh, a lot of people think uh, could succeed Cromwell. Uh, he actually dies in, uh, I think, 1651, uh, at some point during the the Irish campaign, during which, of course, Cromwell does things that cause him to be remembered quite, 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 quite poorly uh, among the Irish. Uh um, but siege warfare was 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 desperately uh, brutal uh, in the day. Uh, at any rate, Cromwell dies in, in 1658. There's no good solution about what to do next. The army tries to take over, but that's not a good solution. You don't have any good leader of the army. Eventually, uh, the Scots uh, say, well, you know, we, we were fighting for this, this Charles II uh, person. Uh, and uh, uh, some remnants of the long parliament, they say, well, let's let's pretend that all this stuff, uh, all these new parliaments uh, uh, didn't didn't really happen. Uh, let's get the remaining members of the the uh, uh, long parliament to call back Charles II. And Charles II says, oh, great, great, great. I'd uh, I'd love to I'd love to be king. Makes a bunch of promises that end up not being uh, fulfilled to the likes of uh, people like Rutherford. That. Yeah, so. So Rutherford at this point, uh, and everybody knows that this book is the leading intellectual uh, justification for what kicked this all off in, in 1638. Um, 
Uh, Charles II, he you know he rounds up all the regicides from 1649 that he can. A bunch of them run off to America. The, the, if you go to Yale, the, a lot of the, the the tours like, oh, these are where the regicides came, and one went that way, and we named a road after him, and one went this other way, and we named a road after him. So you got the the, the three regicides that came there. Uh, they dig up Cromwell's bones and have you know and and execute him, uh, saying he was he was the traitor. Um, so they uh, so. When Charles II comes back in in 1660, uh, this becomes you know, uh, uh, public enemy number one. Public, yeah, yeah, public enemy number one. Uh, uh, Rutherford is is dying, and he uh, he says, "Well, I'm uh, uh, going to meet uh, going to meet my judge." Uh, and uh, as as a little snark, I mean, I, the comment about I'm going to meet a judge, I'm going to someplace meet someone that you're not going to meet. It has this kind of it's an odd cocktail of both his really, I mean, just sweet longing to be with Jesus. Uh, you read his, his letter. I mean, it's just, it's just so, so beautiful, so spiritually helpful. But then he adds in this little snark, <laughs> uh, 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 which is, it was part of the time that it was, uh, you know, they were fighting about things that they really cared about. Yeah. They cared about whether the gospel would be able to be preached in uh, uh, a pure form right. without distractions uh, and without formalism that uh, caused people to have false assurance. It was really, it was a, this is a deadly serious uh, matter. Uh, but Rutherford is off the scene and uh, uh, everybody knows the ideas at this point very, very well. So there's not, there's just no hope of eradicating uh, Rutherfordism. No putting out of, yeah genie it, back in yeah. the but, bottle. Yeah. Yeah. But they certainly can uh, get, a, you know, the bulk of the nation in the 1660s thinks, yeah, we really, we were, we went overboard in, in trying to, uh, trying to completely run things on a, uh, uh, a kind of a fiercely biblical model. There's just too much disagreement among the different parties that didn't like Charles to really have any consensus. Um if Cromwell had somehow been able to live for 60 years past taking power, he could have might have been able to establish a culture that would have been stable, but but he five years was was nowhere near enough. And then in 1683, you've got uh, so Charles the uh, second, he has uh, he has many children, uh, but none of them with the queen, unfortunately. Uh, and his brother is set to succeed him. There's a big fight uh, uh, about so the Whigs, uh, so the Whigs are basically the the, the Puritan party, the Whigs and Tories uh, are, are the t- two big parties. The Whigs attempt to get James II excluded from the succession, uh, but they fail. And in 1683, uh, with uh, James II about to, uh, it's, it's clear Charles II is, is not going to survive that much longer. Uh, James II is, is getting ready. So this is an explicit Roman Catholic getting ready to take the throne. Uh, Charles II is uh, everybody uh, agrees he's, he's kind of a cryptocratic. He he, he takes Catholic uh, 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 rights on the uh, on his deathbed in 1685 from his from his brother. Uh, that's when the last book burning happens in England, and among the books that they they cast into the flames is is Lex Rex. Uh, it's been illegal to have it, but they think, oh, let's you know let's see if we can find some people with copies and and, and burn those. Uh, the uh, James second administration is terrified about the idea that if the king acts unlawfully, sometimes it might be uh, okay to uh, to resist him. Uh, so uh, very much this is part of the idea. Uh, I mean, right off in 1685, you have an initial uh, revolt uh, against James II, just saying he he's, he's an illegal king. It's illegal to have anybody 
who is submitted to Rome, uh, administering a church that is founded on, on the principles that it is. Um, 1689, or really 1688, uh, Rutherfordism uh, is very, very big part of the resistance to James once the... Uh, um, a bunch of details about 1688, but you have a bunch of bishops who are told to read a statement they refuse to, and then you have the trial of the bishops. So it was uh, June 30th, 1688, the acquittal of the bishops, uh, and when they they acquit the bishops, a bunch of James II's people's like, okay, looks like looks like the lesser magistrates are starting to speak. Um, let's uh, and there's for very, very, very complicated reasons, uh, James II's daughter is married to this fellow, uh, William of Orange, who is uh, in the Netherlands. So he's, he's called the Stadtholder. Uh, and he is interested in becoming King of England, mostly so he can uh, put together a coalition to oppose Louis XIV. So whole bunch of very, very, very complicated politics. But, uh, uh, and double crossings, it's... Uh, Actually, Winston Churchill has an ancestor, uh, the Duke of Marlborough, that uh, <laughs> behaves in, um, I mean, Churchill, when he tells his, his, his history, he actually writes a biography of this, this fellow and puts, puts as happy a, 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 a face as he can on it. But there's, there's cro double crossing with, you know, wheels within wheels within wheels of the double crossing. But William III comes in, he comes, he actually lands on the 5th of November, which is the anniversary of the Guy Fawkes plot from, uh, from 1605. But, uh, uh, but he comes in and asserts authority to displace James II on the base of James II acting unlawfully. And Rutherfordism is a huge, huge part about that. So uh, the Whig view of government really becomes the established doctrine in 1689. So a lot, you know, a lot of a lot of Reformed Baptists, of course, you think, 1689, I remember that year. Uh, you know, if you're if you're going around to Reformed Baptist churches and you see a four-digit key code around the back, uh, it no longer will work for our church. But uh, but uh, you, your first try probably should be 1689 because when William III comes in, uh, suddenly you get a lot more religious liberty. So the you know, Second London Baptist Convention, it was written 1677. But it wasn't it wasn't safe to publish and you know put a whole bunch of names subscribing to a confession in 1677. You got to wait until uh, uh, you get uh, William III uh, around. He's he's not a Baptist, but he's allowing the Baptists to to, to get together, and that's when Rutherford uh, comes out. And hence the historical uh, uh, term for that uh, ascension, the Glorious Revolution. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, so the uh, so the. Uh, uh, yeah, and then you know, so that gets established without any any fighting because James realizes he's he's not gonna yeah. going fight. He heads off to Ireland, and there there are some battles, uh, but uh, nowhere near as, as violent as the skirmishes. Really, yeah. yeah, but then you've got America. Okay, exactly. so you've got uh, so America. You know what is America? So a lot of these folks, the basic political outlook of these folks. Um, at least, in, I mean, there's different there's differences among different parts of America, but especially the people who come to like Massachusetts in the 1620s. What are they coming to Massachusetts uh, to do? They're trying to do in America what their friends were trying to do under the Stuarts, uh, and prevent you know, pre trying to prevent further erosion 
in the Elizabethan settlement, but also saying, oh, well, if we go to America, we can uh, really set up things in a, in a fully uh, fully biblical way where we're just, we're taking all of the practices of, uh, of uh, Rome or Rome's descendants and uh, getting rid of them if they're unbiblical. So um, in 1689, uh, they're very happy. Uh, so, you know, in the 1640s, when, you know, you know there's a bunch of people who, you know, in, in America, they're paying attention you bet. Um, uh, there's a very big difference between Massachusetts and and uh, Virginia. So in the 1640s, when the Puritans are on the ascendancy in England, uh, whole bunches of people leave England and head to Virginia. So Virginia, you know, the uh, team mascot uh, is the Cavaliers. Well, those are the people fighting against the Puritans in, in England. So you have a, a very different uh, mix of attitudes in uh uh, in Virginia and, and Massachusetts, but uh, the, the the kind of general wiggery of the of the of, of the English folks. General wiggery. We're general wiggery in the future. <laughs> yeah, uh, it really, it's, it's it spreads through through all of the, the American political culture. So uh, a lot of them call themselves American Whigs. Yeah. Uh, so uh, and if you look at the Declaration of Independence, a bunch of the stuff in it is basically Rutherfordian. So Absolutely. when they say, so he, he has a, a statement that um, makes several times, all men are born free. And what he means by that is people don't come out of the womb uh, born to be king. There are people who come out of the womb with a hereditary claim based on contingent uh, legal arrangements with a claim to be king once their father dies, but there aren't people who are natural kings. So when Jefferson says people are not born uh, naturally wearing uh, saddles or spurs, you know, natural slave, natural yeah. slaves to be ridden or spurs to be natural masters. Um, he's very, it's very much, very similar to to what uh, what Rutherford is saying. And you know, of course, Jefferson doesn't follow through on those principles. Uh, Thomas Paine, he's not, I would say, not a friend of the uh, of of our way of thinking. I mean, he's a fiercely atheistic, but he one of the things he says, he says, in America, the law is king. Not quite the same same yeah. thing that Rutherford did, but there's like people who heard that, no question. They would say, ah, in America, Lex yeah. is uh, Rex is Lex. Okay. We so he, he said we shouldn't have a king at all. You know, the king should just be the law. Uh, but lots of people uh, uh take that view. But the if you look at the argument of the Declaration of Independence, all people are created equal, i.e., the king can't rule simply in virtue of being born a king. Um, the rest of the argument is uh, essentially uh, the 18th century version of Rutherford's argument uh, exactly. from the 17th century. And they make explicit what was implicit in Rutherford's teaching, that the people in America have the right to alter or abolish the government when it becomes destructive yeah, of, the of the ends, ends of, of government. That's right. Right, right, right. And, so a uh, really remarkable document, though. Yeah, so if you, if you, if you really want to understand the Declaration of Independence— You've got to understand at least something of the Rutherfordian yeah. uh, 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 water in which everybody is is, is swimming at the time. Um, so you know, so one question uh, sometimes our kids ask: Well, why was it okay? Uh, you know, Romans. You read Romans thirteen, and you think, why exactly was it okay for us to revolt against King mm -hmm. George? Um, the Declaration of Independence doesn't have scriptural citations for all these things. Doesn't go through uh, lesser magistrates. Right. Doesn't go through uh, all of uh, 
all of the, the terminology. But if you know, the better you know Rutherford, the better you'll be able to understand uh, the argument that uh, Jefferson is putting together. And Jefferson, you know, Jefferson, you know, he comes up with a lot of beautiful language, but really he's working in an environment where he knows he's got to tailor an argument to people who are far more biblically committed than Jefferson is. So it, it really is uh, a far more Rutherfordian document than uh, probably Jefferson would have done uh, himself. I, I'm not sure if, he, you know, he, there's a bunch of fascinating studies about his first draft and the, the final thing. I don't know if, you know, it, yeah, if yeah. specifically there's, there's elements, but he, it, in the environment, uh, this is what makes America. Uh, and our current system, our current constitutional system, where we've got certain powers given to the executive, legislative, and, and judiciary, certain powers given to uh, primary executive officers and subordinate uh, executive officers, certain powers given to the federal government, certain powers given to states and, and, and local governments, that is uh, based on the reason that you have a system where one of those authorities can legitimately claim uh, to disagree with another without being, uh, without cutting itself off from the system. Yes, it's a Rutherfordian thought, yeah. and you'll you'll find people in the 1790s, just in the in the very first earliest cases of judicial review, uh, they say, well, in America, we don't we don't believe in this passive obedience. Passive obedience was, it's kind of a a funny term to unpack, but it's basically the the Stuart doctrine right. that everybody has to obey the king. The king is the only one who gets to decide uh, whether uh, this is a, a sufficiently unlawful uh, for you to, to rebel. And so we, we have judicial review. Legislature passes a statute. Judges can say, well, you know, uh, you might have thought it was constitutional, but it's it, it's uh, contrary to our best view of, of, of what the Constitution means. Right. Uh, that is a form of, uh, you know, I don't know if a lesser magistrate, another magistrate, saying uh, uh, that, you know, in this circumstance, we have authority to say uh, uh, say that you've acted illegally, acted contrary to the Constitution. Um, and, you know, as in the 1640s, there's going to be all kinds of contingent questions about exactly right. who has jurisdiction over right. what, uh, who is, you know, what, what powers do we have? How, you know, how clear a case does it have to be? To, to say something's unconstitutional, that kind of question. Exactly. And if I may bring it up right to the modern day, I mean, again, in a lot of ways, this is not so theoretical for me. I have clients that are in jail right now for uh, opposing the laws that permit the slaughter of children in the womb, right? Uh, I have others who have been penalized civilly, not criminally, for uh, quoting Romans 13 and then asserting a right to, if circumstances uh, were such, to take the law into their own hands when, again, the government does not enforce laws against murder. Um, and, and then there's the other side, as Romans 13 is so explicit about the role of government, right, to reward the good and punish the evil, certainly a, a pretty compelling argument could be made today that our government does precisely the opposite. We reward the lawless and penalize the lawful. And so the question sort of starts to take on some flesh and bones about when, if ever, is it appropriate to resist actively and perhaps with force of arms a government that's out of control? Steve, I think that question is a great way for us to kind of narrow our focus some from the big picture of the historic and intellectual things that were occurring when Rutherford wrote, even the, even the national and international application of those principles, which are all important. 
But what about the believers? And what about believers in our particular day? And so I, I do want us to kind of bring it down into some more particular application. And I think uh, we have to be clear that um, just because our authorities that are ruling over us at whatever level are perhaps completely ignorant of the fundamental principles that, that Rutherford pressed. I mean, obviously, they've probably not read Lex Rex. They've not heard of Lex Rex, but they may be ignorant of the fundamental principles that they should not be ignorant of. Um, just because of that ignorance, that doesn't give us a right to, uh, to, you know, kind of mockingly reject their authority. Even the fact that they are not believers doesn't give us a, a right to treat them with disdain and rebel. But there are times where the believer must, through um, careful, prayerful, you know, biblical wisdom, must respond in a way that the ruling uh, powers that be are going to find it's a bit rebellious, you know. And, um, and of course, there are thousands of ways to look at that. So let's, let's, uh, let's think of three areas that we can just kind of talk about in our application. There's the civil response of the believers. There is an individual or personal response of the believers, and, and there's some overlap there. And there is what we might call an ecclesiological response of the churches in the land. So civil response, your whole ad adult life has been devoted to believers being uh, taking a stand in a way that gives pushback to uh, moral decay in a nation. And we belong to a nation, which we're very grateful for, that still allows, they still offer us this means of, in a sense, standing against the rules or the choices of our leaders in a way that is appropriate. And Christians, we feel, should take that opportunity in the right way of making a, a civil response to unjust action. So, I mean... What would you say in, in that category? You know, how do you explain that category to people that may not agree that it exists? You know, one of the principles that uh, I think uh, overrides everything in our lives is loving our neighbors as ourselves, right? Well, there's certainly that civic application of that principle in the context that we find ourselves in America, where failure to speak out maybe to uh, uh, address your congressmen and women, uh, to even take cases to court where you're not doing it for selfish reasons, but you're doing it because we were discussing in, in the break how Paul would sometimes uh, stand up for his rights, sometimes not. And, and it's not easy to take a, a universal rule here, but where to do so is to help your neighbor and reestablish a principle, a rule of law, uh, that will protect not just yourself in your given uh, particular circumstances, but others. Classic example, we, we just had a lengthy discussion this week regarding street preachers and the, the basic right to proclaim the gospel in the public ways. Um, it's no surprise to you that worldwide you see a, a real uh, kind of wrenching of and removal of that right. And even in America, more and more, when you speak out and proclaim certain biblical truths, they are deemed 
absolutely off limits, offensive to the sensitivities of our citizenry today, and you're not even allowed to proclaim what the, the Bible says. And so... At the same time, some of those folks are, you know, they're looking to be as offensive as they can. Precisely, exactly they think, right. I want to be able to, yes. you know, assert my First Amendment. Yes. Uh, uh, or, or the thought that being offensive would be the kind of the most direct route to yeah. effectiveness. Yeah, it's, it is, it, it sometimes is the most direct route to a court case, but that can't be our goal. Yeah, and I think we have examples in scripture there. But so let, let's say one basic principle for ap applying that is civil, um, civil response of rejecting, you know, uh, immoral laws or Im immoral choices in our government, um, local or national. The civil should take, I think one of the, the, one of the driving motivations would be, I am thinking of someone other than just me. Yes. So when you're pressing yes. a case for a person who is presently in jail because of the way that they stood against, you know, abortion, which we feel is a very wicked, um, you know, freedom in our country. So you're pressing the case, but you're not just doing it because Joe's in jail and Joe's not with his family. And Joe's losing income. And, you know, and, and yeah. Joe's, you know, it's not just Joe. It's there, there is a principle uh, and, and there, there is something larger than the individual. And so the civil yeah. response is, is for an individual, but it's for something larger. Exactly. Um, I think that uh, if, we, if we, let's take it down to the personal level, because you mentioned Paul. And I think there, you know, there we have, a, there's a blending at times between the two. When we think about personal responses to unjust authority or to uh, immoral exercise of authority, so this could be, uh, you know, uh, a president, it could be the Congress, it could be the judges, it could be the local government, it could be your employer, your boss, yes. you know, um, what do you do? And I think there's, you know, while we can't certainly give, um, you know, 100 things to, 100 steps to take. So we have to give principles. I think one principle is, the question, what's really at stake here? Because there, there are some things that are, that are at stake which are of lesser importance, or they, at least they should be to us as believers. And there are some things that are at stake which may not be easily recognizable immediately in the situation, but if you'll calmly kind of step back and not have an emotional reaction yeah. to a situation, let, so let's say at work, uh, you know, you step back and the authority at work has done something. You step back from self and you look and you say, okay, what's at stake here? If it's only my personal preferences, even if it's unjust treatment, I may as a believer see that there is a, a larger thing at stake and that is my opportunity to witness yes. to a higher governmental authority, Christ himself. So I belong to the higher king my citizenship is in a kingdom that will never end. I'm also an American, and I'm also under this local employer or boss. When the local employer or boss makes my life difficult, I can claim my rights. You know, maybe I, I shoot above my local boss, and, and I, I go to his boss, and I get this taken care of. But in doing so, would I forfeit my opportunity mm. to show people that while I do value my personal rights in this situation, I gladly lay them aside without complaint in order to show that there's something so much greater than me getting treated rightly. Yeah. 
I, I think our sense of personal honor is a highly motivating uh, yeah. factor and just just the outrage that we have or that everybody has when they're insulted. That's not something, if you look at Paul, you look at the New Testament, look at yeah. Acts, Paul really, I mean, he just, he, he delights in insults to the extent that it allows him to have a platform to explain the gospel. Uh, I mean, he, he's like, yeah, everybody thinks this, this, this gospel is, is, is offensive. Of course they're going to insult it. If I've got a, a, a better platform, I am just seeking not my honor. I'm seeking mm. the honor of King Jesus. Yes. And, uh, but you look at, oh, my goodness, what, what will set things off uh, in a workplace? And, I mean, I, I've, I've experienced this myself. I find myself far, far more upset about somebody insulting me than doing things that, you know, pragmatically might be far, far more important. Mm. So I think not being motivated by, uh, and I'm really just, I mean, talking about things that, bad motivations that I have personally, uh, being motivated by anger, being motivated by having been insulted, uh, that's uh, a, a very, very powerful, but uh, those are motives that, that shouldn't, uh, they, to the extent that we can mortify them, that I can mortify them, I've got to just uh, extirpate them from the way I think about relating to, to authorities. That's not to say the authority, I mean, authorities, you know, should, uh, I mean, showing honor to those whom honor is due. That's one yeah. of the Romans 13 principles. Yes. And uh, I think there are lots of constitutional principles about uh, government, uh, it's being uh, a serious constitutional problem to dishonor people, uh, to insult people. But to the extent that that's my personal motivation, it is highly unlikely uh, to do uh, to do any good except uh, insofar as God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. It's a way to be a crooked stick, to uh, just be angry at things. Yeah, um, yeah. agreed. I, I think that, um, let's think about Paul. So Paul is a Roman citizen. Paul is a Roman citizen by birth, even though he's Jewish. He's not a Roman citizen by purchasing it, as we see others are in the New Testament. And so, you know, he's a bit of a, it's, it's, a, it's, an, a, bit, it's a bit of an elite level in that Jewish world. And especially as he travels the Roman Empire, taking the gospel to these cities, he has rights that not everybody has that he meets. And he can call upon those rights at any point, but he so rarely does. We might not even notice that he has these rights if it weren't for Philippi and then later in his life toward the end. At Philippi, he is unjustly grabbed and beaten and thrown into prison. No due process. Well, you can do that. You can do that to a lot of people, but you cannot do that in Philippi to a Roman citizen. Mm. So you can mistreat some people, but you don't mistreat the Roman citizen. And Philippi is a Roman colony. And so, you know, the, I, the, that's a certain level of privilege that not every town enjoyed. And so, you know, they're under scrutiny. If Paul says your Roman colony mistreated a Roman, uh, you know, then, Philip, the, then, the, then the local leaders, they're in hot water. So he's thrown into prison. They find out he is a, um, you know, they, they find out he's a Roman citizen. So they've done it all wrong legally, and he could really make their life miserable. So they try to shoo him out quietly, and he says, no, we're going to do this publicly. Why is this the first time in the book of Acts that we hear Paul claim his right as a Roman citizen? And I think the answer is that in other places, being willing to be beaten to the point 
of being left for dead. He chooses that as the platform to share um, the, the majesty and the realities of Jesus of Nazareth. He takes that terrible cost that unjustly is laid on him and pays it to bring the gospel to them in a way that can never be forgotten. That man was beaten and left for dead to tell me about Jesus. When he could have, as a Roman, we could all be in jail. So at sometimes he uses the suffering, which when he writes to Philippi, he says, it has been granted to you. Faith has been granted to you. That's a gift from God. You couldn't believe on your own and suffering mm -hmm. for Jesus. Those are both gifts from God. Mm -hmm. So sometimes he sees it clearly. This is God's choice that I be mistreated. And I will use this as the billboard to show the gospel in a way that can never be forgotten. Well, other times, Philippi, he claims his rights. And I think that that has to do with the greater benefit. What's at stake? Not Paul's pride or Paul's comfort, but he's about to leave a city which has just really mistreated a person for telling them the gospel. How will the people he leaves behind be treated? And so he's going to be leaving and he lets them know, you have mistreated a Roman and I have not pressed this, you know, to your great disadvantage. And I think it sets a, a different atmosphere in Philippi between local authorities and the believers. You know, their man didn't press the authority. These are people that were, you know, that we mistreated the Roman with. And so, you know, it's like, don't press that. The uh, one example from the 18th century, the the revival men, the Calvinistic Methodists, they were called. All right. So forget the denomination Methodism. So in the 18th century, the Great Awakening that occurred there is called the Evangelical Revival. So you have men like Whitfield and Roland and Whit, uh, Harris, who were Welshmen. We don't know as much about them usually. In Wales, there was pretty violent opposition and mobs were often gotten going by local magistrates. So local magistrates felt, um, they felt loyalty to the Church of England. Now, all these revival men were Church of England men, but they were presented uh, by, in public opinion and gossip as anti-Church of England. There were even books written against Whitfield saying he actually was in the pay of the French because his preaching was undermining uh, local stability because you're attacking our church. And, you know, that's the other great stabilizing factor. We have monarchy and we have church. So our local church, which everybody, 96% of the people in, you know, in the early 18th century throughout England and Wales, 96% are Anglican. Only 4% are dissenters, Baptists or Presbyterians, Congregationalists. So you're, you're trying, you're starting this, this upheaval in society to make us weak so that the French can march back in, you know? So, uh, the local magistrates, out of a personal kind of nostalgic attachment to their, to their state church, they oftentimes got the crowds riled up and the, um, the kind of the thuggish guys in town would be given free ale. They got drunk and then they were pointed at the Methodists. Go get them. And they would attack and throw rocks and rotten fruit and beat people gathering to hear Whitfield preach. Well, over and over it occurs, and the Calvinistic Methodists, the Anglicans preaching in the revival, never press uh, their opportunity to, you know, take these people to court and get them in trouble, because it is against the law. 
until one time in Wales, it got pretty bad. And they decided we will press our rights here. But the reason was not Whitfield or Harris or the other men thought, you know, I'm tired of having rotten fruit thrown at me when I preach. So I don't have to have it. I could press my rights. And then everyone else would be scared of mistreating me. So that was not it. But they pressed the rights because they saw that there was an increased violence in the crowds stirred up by local sheriffs or local lords and ladies. And we need to go ahead and check that for the sake of the churches by saying, hey, we have a right to take you to court and you will be in trouble for this um, because it's not legal for you to do this to us. So, you know, who, what's at stake? Personal rights or the good of the church or the reputation of Christ? Yeah, a lot of very similar questions. I mean, there's just no clear-cut categorical uh, answer. You could, in the uh, just the missionary movement in various parts of the British Empire. Mm -hmm. So when you show up, um, I mean, Spurgeon talks about this a lot in his, his sermons. He's talking about, I mean, he's excited that the gospel is going different places, but he knows that all of these people have a big question. Uh, to what extent are they going to rely on just British forces of arms in requiring people at various places in the empire? That you know, the empire has all kinds of different levels of. Of, of amounts of authority, to what extent are we going to attempt to get the gospel to be spread or have the freedom to be spread uh, through force of arms? And uh, some you know, very, very difficult questions. Uh, so if you look at um, just the 19th century history, it is- Yeah, Hudson uh, Taylor in China of, is yeah, an example. The yeah. Boxer Rebellion and how he chooses not and feels it was a great error, though well meant, it was a great error to lean on Britain to protect the missionaries because mm. when the ar British armies left, when the British Navy leaves, you know, the, the, the local Christian missionary is despised. You know, you're not representing Christ, you're representing Britain. Yeah. And Britain came and, and, and squashed us, you know, for your sake. And now they're gone and we hate you. We won't, we won't kill you, but we hate you and we hate your gospel. Um, yeah, so it does take biblical wisdom to know, when am I standing for the sake of the honor of Christ and the good of others? And when am I standing for my own personal preferences? Because it is easy as a believer for us to not think through those things honestly and to say, well, because they're mean to me at work, because my school has kind of, you know, um, because I, I'm religious and, and I go to a certain school and then I, I suffer some kind of consequences of being Christian well, they're, they're against Jesus, so I have yeah. to stand for Jesus. No, you're really standing for yourself. So, like you said, it, it takes a lot of honest uh, self-examination, and it takes a lot of wisdom. I would say a, a general test for any of us would be this. Am I keenly interested in Christ being pleased and honored in every area of my life? Am I as keen in every other area as I am that Christ in, in me, that Christians be treated right at my work, at my college, oh. at, in my town, you know? And if I'm super zealous about me having my rights protected at work, but I'm not so zealous about Christ's rights when I'm sitting in front of my television at mm. night, mm. I think that we're self-deceitful. And that is always a possibility for, for all of us. Mm. So, and, you know, it's good to ask your honest Christian friends, who will be honest with you? You know, it, 
do you think this is wise? Will this lead to the honor of Jesus? Or should I allow personal hardship in order to show the world there is something that makes me so deeply happy, some person that you don't know? Any religion can bark against the government and, and complain, but only the believer who is so happy in Christ can say, right is right and wrong is wrong and you have done wrong. But I am so happy in the king and in a, in, a, in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I'm not going to press my rights in this situation, but other times I must. And uh, yeah, I mean, we, I don't know if we're going to end with uh, quoting the sands of time or sinking, which yeah, is can. based, based on Rutherford's stuff. But I mean, that is what we've got to have. Yes. Keeping our eye on the ball yes. uh, is, is just absolute prescription for sanity with respect to everything going on in the world. Yeah, what's at stake? Understanding just how temporary all of this stuff is, that uh, we're not looking, um, yeah, the bride eyes not her garments, but uh, her dear bridegroom's face, looking at Jesus instead of the gifts that he gives to us, the yes. good things that yes. we have uh, uh, from Christ, the good things we have from a relatively, um, uh, in, in in certain ways, good civil government, as, as much wickedness as it is. I mean, we have... A lot of corruption here, but so much less than certain countries. No, that's I right. mean, it is mind-boggling how right. corrupt so many governments are. And uh, having the blessing of, of, of that is, is, is great. Having the opportunity still to uh, uh, send, the, send the gospel forth is, is great. But that's just, that's just all our garments. Uh, that's just gifts that we get from Jesus. I mean, that's not, mm. that's not Jesus. Uh, right. He's he's right. so much uh, more important than anything uh, he does through us or anything he gives to us. Um, yeah, I, I think another motivation that we have to be careful with, and this this goes hand in glove with um, the confusion of my personal rights with Christ's honor. You know, since I'm a Christian, if I'm mistreated, it's easy to think, oh, it's Jesus, and I have to st I have to stand up for Jesus. It reminds me of um, pastoring a little church uh, before I came to North Mississippi some years before. And um, we had a, uh, a, a group of older gentlemen that lived right next to the church. And then there was the church and it was a, it was a rural church. So, you know, there's a lot of grass around the church. We had, a, you know, a number of acres and there was just a thin strip between the edge of the church and then the edge of these, these three older bachelors. They were all probably in their seventies and they were all lost. So I would, as the pastor, I would go visit these old men and they had no interest in Jesus. And part of their complaint was, you know, well, we know those people at that church, they're mean, et cetera. You know, mm -hmm. and I'd say, well, you know, really, that's not the question. All right. So let's go back to you and Christ. Well, these old men, their little driveway, they had their three little old men cars and they were in the driveway and it's kind of hard to get out of your narrow driveway. So what they would do is they make a U drive. They'd cut through about 30 foot of church grass into the church parking lot and then go out. Well, when it gets wet, you know, when a lot of rain comes, then we'd have these ruts in the churchyard. Mm. Then comes the deacons meeting mm. where the deacons, deacons were so upset and their personal, in, their personal fury, their feeling of insult trespassers. was that this is God's grass <laughs> and we must protect it. <laughs> so I said, actually, guys, I have another, op I have another idea. And this is the reason I didn't last very long. Um, so I said to these deacons, who in a sense meant well, but I think they were misguided. I said, guys, here's what, I think this is a better way to handle it. I'm gonna go talk to those men. They go, that's good, you go, you know, you go tell them. I said, well, here's what I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say that because 
we are believers in Christ and how he's treated us. We want them to know that not only are they free because what they voted to do was build a fence, not only are they free to go through our grass, but we want them to make use of our grass when it's better for them. And because we're Christians and we're not selfish. And oh, they got so angry. And I said, and then you mean I'll the say, deacons got angry. The, yeah. yeah, the deacons got angry. And I said, yeah. and I'm going to tell them, you, 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 you talked about it and you want them to use that grass. And I said, and I will also mention that when it's wet, it, it makes it really difficult to mow mm. our grass if there's these big ruts. So if they could just be uh, aware of that, you know. So that was, um, I didn't have any authority as a Baptist pastor to tell the deacons <laughs> I, that I called for the vote. I was the only vote. I voted yes. And then I went over and told, and I went over and told the old men that you might be surprised, but those old men over there, they, they'd love for you to use that grass because they're Christians, <laughs> which of course I think was a bit deceitful. So I, I need to repent of that. All right. So. One other area before I want Steve to talk to, um, uh, so I want to say one more thing about the personal. And then Steve, I want you to talk to us about an ecclesiological response. The personal. Sometimes there is the fear of, fail, uh, of future greater difficulties yes. if we don't stand against present problems. So, okay, so there's a moral slide here. Stand against it now or it'll be worse later. And that certainly is something... We don't want to be, you know, the frog in the boiling pot. Right. All right. But then under that general umbrella, I find that other things get shoved under there that probably shouldn't have been under there, not for the believer. And that is, if I don't stand for my personal comforts now, mm -hmm. then next year or my children's lifetime or my grandchildren, their personal comforts might be taken away. And But we say it in a very religious way to make yes. it sound noble. Yes. So let me get, you know, lose half our following. Uh in COVID, there was a lot of reaction mm. against masks. I asked one of our friends who's a pastor, um, and I won't give his name because he didn't. I, I didn't ask his permission. So I sent him a text and I said, is COVID really throwing a lot of like, you know, grenades into the church, you know, where, where people are kind of disagreeing? And we didn't really have much of that at all. But is it doing that to you? He said, man, he wrote back on his, in his text, greatest masks, comma, greatest persecution the church has ever suffered. You know, obviously it was tongue in cheek. <laughs> I called another pastor friend of mine. Are you guys having a lot of division? I hear of churches having a lot of division during COVID. He wrote back and he said, man, my entire week pastoral labors is devoted to this problem because he said half the people in the church want to get on the crazy bus. And he said, the other half are driving the crazy bus. So he, he's actually a very funny guy. So during COVID, masks were required. And, and yeah. I want to be, be very specific so as not to get everyone angry. When masks were required for going into a business, okay? So the poor business owner, yeah. he, he can't help what yeah. his government has said. So he's got to put a sign up and he's expected to do it. All right. So you look, you walk up and there's this sign. You have to wear a mask. I hated masks, you know, personally. So uncomfortable. But I felt for the poor businessman. I thought, so if I was that guy, the law yeah. of love would say, why don't I wear a mask without complaint? So I'll walk in without saying, this is stupid. You know, why do you got that sign up? Why don't you stand against tyrants? You know? So I thought, the poor guy just wants to survive COVID without going belly up and bankrupt. So I put the mask on, I come in and act like it's not a problem. Well, some people felt the argument was this. 
no, that was stupid because if you let the government tell you to wear a mask, which we, which the person felt was clearly governmental overreach. Yeah. So whatever, whatever your view of that, then the next step is they'll take your Bible. And I thought, wait, wait, wait. So fear of a, of a possible outcome, mm. does that legitimize any old rebellious attitude in the present moment? And I think that, some, that it takes a lot of wisdom, but sometimes we don't, that's a wrong response because we belong to the God who is ruling over other, other thing, everything. And he's allowed us to be requested to wear a mask at Walmart. That doesn't mean that tomorrow morning they'll take the Bible away from my grandchildren yeah. kind of a thing. Yeah, so perspective we have to be is, careful. Perspective is just so important. You got to yeah. see all this stuff in light of God's sovereignty, knowing more history. Yes, uh, that is. So, you, you know, yes. the fact that, that we, you know, so many of our friends know about three minutes of, of history. Well, um, yeah, I mean, you just think you of just a guy standing in front of a, a hill, a small hill. Yeah. And he's like, ah, this is a hill? Does nobody see this hill? I, I, I can't understand why nobody's feeling that. And like, yeah, okay, we see it. Back up historically and see the bigger picture. It doesn't mean that that's not important, but put it in perspective. And then you see the Himalayas or the Rockies next to it, and you think, oh, yeah. okay. It is an important thing, but let's, let's put it in its perspective. And that is helpful. Well, Steve, what about ecclesiological responses? Did you want to jump in? With yeah, you? I just wanted to say, okay, too, I mean, the whole idea of seeking a multitude of counselors um, as, as you— Not on the Internet. Not on the Internet. <laughs> as you alluded to earlier as well, uh, the interests of Christ here— and you risk at that point being completely marginalized, labeled as either litigious or, you know, just out of your mind. Um, and so you have lost the potential audience, perhaps, that you were trying to reach in the first place. And it is difficult, though, because the bright lines aren't out there. At least most of us can't see those bright lines, right? They become very fuzzy at, at points. And so... Yeah, to be on our knees and seeking the Lord. And, you know, one practical thing, I joked about not listening to the Internet to get, I mean, because we tend to just pick who we know yeah, will yeah. agree with this. Yeah. So, you know, the echo chamber. But I remember during COVID asking people in other cultures, how are you responding mm. to your nation's choices mm. to COVID in a way that you feel is, is the highest road for spiritual good? One of the guys I asked was uh, Jeremy Walker. So how are you responding to this? You know, and it was interesting to see their, their lockdown in that situation was much more uh, enduring and strict than ours here in Mississippi. Yes. And so he envied us. But how, yeah, but how do you, what's your attitude? What's your heart? You know, how, do you, how are you expressing love to God and to man mm. during this? And it was, it was helpful to hear other cultures where we could talk to people that we trusted. Yeah. So ecclesiological yeah. response, what yeah. would that be? I mean, it seems to me, uh, as Calvin pointed out, often God gives us wicked rulers and adverse events because of our own wickedness, and of course, secondarily, maybe even primarily, to drive us, bring us back to Him. And so it seems to me one of the first things we need to do is look inwardly. What have we been doing that would anger our Lord? Should we not seek, as I think you've shared the example 
on a whole council podcast, John, I think it was 1651, wasn't it, where the pastors came together because of uh, downward uh, spiraling in their own nations and didn't rail against the leaders out there, but rather got on their faces and sought the Lord and repented of their own sins. And so yeah, uh, yeah, it was a pastor's response. convention. Yeah. So they wrote up, what are the sins of the ministers yeah. of the land, yeah. which they felt must have some part in the guilt that's bringing judgment on the entire land. Yes. You know, uh, Van Til said uh, somewhat famously, right, uh, culture is religion externalized. Well, we can turn that sort of back around too and say, okay, when culture is falling apart, what does that say about our own inward religion and our relationship with the Lord? And so as we see our own walls falling down culturally, shouldn't we as the church be leading the way back to the Lord on our knees, on our faces before Him, and maybe calling together church conferences uh, to repent and call out to the Lord? And uh, earlier I got, you know, we were talking about uh, uh, 1 Timothy 2. Yes. Uh, you know, what are we supposed to do uh, with respect to rulers? Um, well, first of all, Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, mm -hmm. that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God the Savior, mm -hmm. God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We shouldn't be known as people who are, uh, you know, just think of the opposites of these, these characteristics, uh, loud and boisterous and complaining. We want to be quiet and peaceful. We do have a gospel, which we, I mean, the overarching thing going on in history right now is the spread of the gospel to the nations. And that gospel is going to disturb people, but we want the gospel to disturb. We want mm. Jesus you know, glorified in the gospel to disturb people, yeah. not just us. And I would say if the American church writ large were writing that passage, we would put that as last, not first of all. Yeah. We try everything else first, and then, okay, if that doesn't work, then we'll go. Yeah, and, and if we, and if we can, you know, we, <laughs> we pray that we'd be able to lead a quiet life. Oh, and you know, no quiet life? Well, I guess we got to be, got to be loud. Yeah, got to, yeah. got to, got to just be as annoying as we possibly can. Yeah. And we've, I mean, they're, we keep setting new records about just how annoying and boisterous we can be. Yeah, so salt and light, definitely, mm. even when it's costly, but salt and light in a way that is in harmony with the king, that we're trying to be yeah. a picture of his light and, and the impact of his holy salt, you know? So we're, res we're exposing and restraining sin in the culture uh, as God is using us as his tool but if, if our attitudes are counter Christ's attitude yeah. or counter, you know, the Apostle Paul is such a good example because he goes into so many wicked areas that have no interest in the Messiah. But, it, but still, even though there are strong and um, costly stands that he makes, never is his uh, attitude mm. at, at odds with the attitude of the king that he's representing. So... We, we, in some ways, I mean, we've said this at church many times here. So in some ways, we, will, we, the believer, will be as unlike a mere conservative who's mm. 
railing because life is getting changed and I don't like these, these new changes. So a true believer may share a lot with a conservative. You, know, you may share some values with a liberal, but you share a lot with the conservative, but you are as different from him as he is from the liberal mm. because you're not taking a stand for the old way of life and our rights and what about me and what about my kids. You're taking a stand for the rights of the King Christ. Uh, and, and that changes how you stand. Yeah. A lot, of, uh, a lot to think about. We hope that you found this helpful. Thank you, Chris and Steve, for introducing the, the big picture of what was going on and then what Rutherford pointed out and how that's had an enduring impact in our view of right and wrong and rulers and responses to rulers. If you want uh, more material that you could read, about Rutherford as a pastor and his, just his life, or some of the devotional books that have been uh, done by him or taken as you know, collections of his sermons. Um, we'll put some information for that in the show notes. Teddy will make sure that's there for you. Banner of Truth and Reformation Heritage Books have both published a number of books either about Rutherford or by Rutherford. And one of the most exciting things in the history of the universe is that Reformation Heritage Books is now putting together the complete uh, oh, wow. works of Rutherford. Wow. And so that, I don't know that that's ever been done. And so, I mean, m most of that's going to be have been translated out of Latin. So I hope I live long enough and then they're going to stick it down in my casket and I'm not giving <laughs> it to somebody when I'm dead because I, I want something in the afterlife. I, I got some questions for Rutherford, so I got to have the works. We'll close with a hymn that's attributed to Rutherford. Actually, he didn't write it. Anne Cousin, uh, who lived from 1824 to 1906, wrote it. It's called The Sands of Time Are Sinking. But she basically took straight from his letters uh, whole lines and just put them. He's so poetic. It, it was very easy to move from his prose to a hymn. So I'll, I'll read the verses we have. I think there's 12 or 14 verses in the original. We just have six in our book. So let me read them. The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for. The fair, sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark has been the midnight, but day spring is at hand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Looking forward to eternity with Christ. The King, capital K, the King there in his beauty without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between. The Lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. With mercy and with judgment, my web of time he wove. And when you think of the suffering he went through, you know, how he can just, he glories in the fact that God was ruling over all those. And I, the dews of sorrow, were lustered with his love. I'll bless the hand that guided. I'll bless the heart that planned when throned where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. My favorite verse is the fifth. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. 
not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. I've wrestled on towards heaven against storm and wind and tide. Now, like a weary traveler that leans upon his guide amid the shades of evening, his life is coming to a close. While sinks life's lingering sand, I hail the glory dawning from Emmanuel's land. So, wonderful believer that God saved and fashioned and gave a great mind to. And so we hope that you found this beneficial.